This is not the media. This is hell. Hello, lovely listeners. This is your producer in training, Leo, here, uh, coming at you this week with my selections for uh, the best of episode. Uh, first off, let me see, thank, say thank you to Chuck and Alex and the WNUR family for uh, this opportunity to be a part of the station and to um, be talking with you guys. Thank you. Um, so, keeping it short, this uh, my selections this week are going to be centered around uh, systems of control. They've been around for a long time since the onset of civilization. Uh, programs meant to confine us, domesticate us, enslave us, and eventually turn us into cyborg cattle and food source for the never-satisfied vortex of the artificial interlocking systems of money, the state, technology, and etc. Um, so you can tell half of that was written out. Um, so we've had some great guests in the past year who've talked about all that. In a second, you'll be hearing the first one. Uh, this is Chuck's interview from January of this year with James C. Scott. About the rise of the state alongside domestication agriculture. I hope you enjoy. Bye-bye. Humans have always aspired to live under the guiding and comfortable embrace of the state and its stabilizing forces, or not. And according to our first guest, mostly not. Here to tell us what we know about the first states, which will change the way we view our current state, political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott is author of Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. Welcome to This is Hell, James. Happy to be here. Great to have you on the show. First of all, I know this is kind of a silly question, but every person I have told during office hours or uh, online or personally in any way, when I've said that we're going to have you on the show and the name of the book is Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States, every person to a person has asked me, what do you mean by a deep history? So just so people understand that we can move along because I already asked that question. What do you mean by deep history? It just means going quite far back in history. A deep history, I don't know if you, uh, there was a movement in history that the French started called the Annals School, which was a history of demography and birth rates and diet. And they called that the long durée uh, history. And uh, deep history, there's been some manifestos written along these lines, are an effort to go back to in my case, the sort of very earliest state 6,000 years ago, an even deeper history, of course, a species history, for example, would go back 200,000 years, perhaps. Uh, so the point is that beginning much earlier than one normally begins histories, I think it's worth saying that uh, we generally tend to think in terms of a single lifetime being homo sapiens ourselves. Uh, or maybe our parents and our children. So anything more than three generations is uh, a deep history for most of us. Uh, and this is the instinct that we need to have a longer view of what's happened to us. But isn't our study of history limited to uh, the time beginning with which humans were using writing? Isn't it, Without that kind of written historical record, how can we have any knowledge of uh, the people in the pre-written uh, peoples, the before states? Um, actually, <clears throat> what you say is 
would have been true perhaps 30, 40 years ago, but there have been actually quite astounding um, advances in archaeology uh, in which it's possible to take early settlements. For example, one of the texts that I work with is a study of, it's called Abu Herrera, named after the place in Syria that it uh, was where the digging took place. And this is a site where, in which there is no writing, but it covers the period from hunting and gathering all the way through the beginnings of agriculture for like 2,000, 3,000 years. And they are able, by carefully examining all the things that are remained, that remain, um, to tell us a tremendous amount about the lifestyle, the techniques, uh, the diet of uh, these people. So uh, we can learn a lot more um, from the remains uh, of peoples without writing. And we can also, of course, uh, we had oral culture before we had written culture. Uh, and many of those myths, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and so on, or the Iliad and Odyssey, were actually oral epics uh, that were later written down. So I tend to think that we should pay as much attention to early myths and oral histories, of course, they have to be written down for us to receive them at all at some point, um, then we we shouldn't give any more credibility to written sources than we give to oral sources that are handed down through word of mouth over many generations. But isn't the oral history that is handed down, isn't that going to be less accurate than the written history? I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Is, no, 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 it's good. I'm, 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 enjoying, I'm enjoying your pro- provocations. Uh, the, the answer is no, I think. Uh, that is to say, most of the early writings, they are hymns of praise for, um, for kings or princes uh, or, or large chiefs. They are genealogies, and in many cases, genealogies are made up in order to legitimate the position of a usurper. Um, So the point is that all those early written texts were written for a particular purpose at a particular time with a particular goal in mind, and we shouldn't give them any more truth value than we give to uh, oral cultures. If there is so much new knowledge concerning the first, the, the, concerning the people even before the first states, what explains to you why we continue to have so many unexamined assumptions about what that life was like? If we have all this new knowledge over the last three or four decades that you were pointing out, why are we not changing the way in which we have we view earliest life? Well, in fact. This is the job that I undertook in this book that we're talking about. Uh, And so I think the purpose of uh, Against the Grain, the book that we're talking about, is to tell people who haven't been paying attention, and that included me until not so long ago, uh, of all the things we now know about this early period before writing, uh, when the very earliest states were uh, created. And and by the way, it's worth noticing that we do have a lot of evidence of Mesopotamia, which is the earliest states, and that's partly because they developed cuneiform as a form of writing, which is done on clay tablets. The Egyptians, uh, which are somewhat later, uh, write on papyrus that doesn't survive um, as easily because it's easily 
biodegradable. Uh, and so it is true that we have a little more evidence for the early states of Mesopotamia, and that's because we have the clay tablets that survive. But, but a lot of those clay tablets are telling us things like the Epic of Gilgamesh that were oral uh, stories that people recited before there was writing. You write that sedentism and the first appearance of towns were typically seen to be the effect of irrigation and of states. It turns out that both are instead usually the product of wetland abundance. Did human or, humans organize in towns prior to the advent of the state? How much does our history show that humans have been able to, in fact, organize ourselves even in towns without a state? Um, that's a great question, um, and it's and it's really important. Until not so very long ago, uh, people assumed that the climatic conditions in the Tigris and Euphrates valleys were as arid as they are now. And and there is evidence, of course, of uh, irrigation, but the irrigation occurs rather later than um, uh, was originally thought. The fact is that the Arabian Gulf was, um, the water level was 300 feet higher than it is today. Uh, because of glacial melt in uh, 6000 BC, uh, and therefore the area that is now dry uh, was this uh, wetland area with a tremendous amount of variation from place to place and lots of uh, different ecosystems. And it meant that you could stay within a fairly small area and have a tremendous number of food resources, fish, shellfish, birds, uh, migrating animals, and so on. And so, as you indicated, the fact is that we have towns of 1,000 or 2,000 or even 3,000 uh, well before anything that looks like um, a, a state, uh, a kingdom, a dynasty, and the things that we associate with later civilizations. Do we have any sense of how those towns worked, how they operated, or if they were uh, efficient or sustainable without the state? Is the state the evolutionary step of potentially towns that were not as efficient or organized as they had been in the past? I'm pausing because... um... The, the states are certainly more efficient in creating the surplus that's extracted from cultivators in order to support a class of scribes and, uh, and elites and so on who are not uh, uh, gathering food or not foragers uh, or planters. Uh, and so the state is efficient at reproducing the state. The state is not necessarily more efficient at organizing subsistence. The fact is that um, the uh, you could argue that one of the reasons why states did not arise was because uh, it was possible for people both to move easily from one place to another uh, and have a perfectly abundant subsistence over time. Uh, and so they saw no reason to hand over any part of their um, what they gathered uh, to uh, authorities or chiefs uh, and so on. There was trade, by the way, and that's rather important. And I, these towns that we've talked about that are prior to the existence of states, 
There's a debate about how they were run, and most people think that they were um, like small-scale merchant towns uh, that were trading uh, goods from one area to another. So for part of the year, the place was wet enough so that you could have trading canoes and rafts and so on going from one town uh, to another, and that you had these towns that were a kind of small-scale commercial centers without any permanent authority, although they obviously had some powerful people in them. And uh, you write that agriculture, it was assumed, was a great step forward in human well-being, nutrition, and leisure. Uh, Something like the opposite was initially the case. The state and early civilizations were often seen as attractive magnets, drawing people in by virtue of their luxury, culture, and opportunities. In fact, the early states had to capture and hold much of their population by forms of bondage and were plagued by the epidemics of crowding. To what degree, then, were early states akin to prisons, citizens being not really citizens, but people who are being held against their will? Uh, That's um, the problem of the early states was the problem of keeping population, not of attracting it. Um, The uh, that is to say, um, there. It is true that these states were places in which it was possible for people to make a career in the clergy or as a merchant or as a scribe. And so for the top 20% of that population, um, or 15% probably we're talking, um, this was a good place to be, and uh, those were, in a sense, the the strongest partisans of state formation. The fact is that uh, these states, because of the change in diet, and here I want to also refer to the fact that a whole series of infectious diseases were um, sprang into being that had never existed before that had to do with the relationship with the proximity of domesticated animals and large numbers of human beings together. That's where most of our infectious diseases uh, come from. And for that reason, these places, uh, and because of the narrowness of the diet, the grain, in the case of Mesopotamia, that would be wheat and barley, uh, the diet was more restricted, um, there was more disease, and therefore rates of mortality were rather high, and uh, you had crop failures as well. So the early states were always in danger of losing their population. They could run away. The reason they weren't quite prisons was because it wasn't so hard to run away from these states. Um, Harder in Egypt, I gather, because it was surrounded by deserts um, even then. But in Mesopotamia, uh, the population both died relatively early, um, and it could also run away when it felt that the taxes were too high and so on. And that's the reason why it was a surprise to me to find that Almost all of these early states were slaving states. That is to say, their wars were wars intended to capture people who they could then relocate back at the center. And this was their way of trying to solve the plantation, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the population problem. Uh, so the result was that most of these places had at least 20% of their population, in the cases of Athens and so on, uh, 60-70% of their population were in fact an enslaved population that had been captured by warfare. 
We are speaking with political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott. He is author of Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. James taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison until 1976 and has remained at Yale for the duration of his career. At Yale, he is Sterling Professor of Political Science and has directed the program in Agrarian Studies since 1991. James, you write how you ask whether those populations that remained outside state centers for millennia after the first states were established may not have remained there or fled there because they found conditions better. All of these implications you draw from your reading of the evidence are meant to be provocations. They are intended to stimulate further reflection and research. How much are we today potentially suffering from a legacy of any conflict between populations choosing to live in city centers and states and those who wish to live outside of the state. Does all of human history to this point in time come down to the civilized state in the barbarians in the hinterland in conflict? Uh, that would be a strong claim that I would probably be shy about um, uh, endorsing entirely. Um, I think it's fair to say, as I argue, that the state does not become, in a sense, the dominant institution of political organization until maybe 1600 at the uh, at the latest. Um, the um, before that, um, it's relatively easy. I, I ask myself the following question: uh, If you're interested in whether the state has become kind of a permanent feature of everyone's life, then the question you might ask is, how much of the world's population experienced regular tax collection? Uh, And my answer is that until 1600, it was unlikely that most of the world experienced this at all. It's only after that that the state becomes almost inescapable in the West, and in places like Southeast Asia and Latin America, it becomes more, it becomes inescapable at a later uh, at a later date in Southeast Asia, only after the Second World War, uh, I think. And so the my argument here and actually elsewhere is that a lot of the populations that we regard as primitive populations that have never, if you like, discovered planting, uh, that are kind of Stone Age populations, um, that in fact, the more we have learned about them, Almost all of these groups were people who did know how to plant and may have planted sort of um, a portion of their subsistence historically, but uh, who left planting in order to get away from the taxation uh, of a state and from the control and forced labor that a state would impose. So my argument is that actually most of the so-called barbarians outside the state's uh, gates, if you like, through most of history, are people who ran away from states rather than people who had never been exposed to them. The famous example of this actually is a French uh, anthropologist named Pierre Clostre, who worked in Latin America. And there were these groups, the Siriono, the Yanomamo, the Guarani, who were seen as Stone Age survivors. And he was the first person to suggest, and it's later been shown, that these were people who knew how to plant uh, and did had planted, but who ran away and became foragers in the forest in order to escape the forced labor and disease 
that they associated with the Spanish and Portuguese uh, mission and military stations. But there's this sense within our history or our understood history that isn't necessarily accurate that we that all humans aspired to get out of the forest and to live in some sort right. of state. So how much evidence is there that those who lived outside the state lived in a horrible life of exile, precarity, chaos, and violence? Well, that's the big story of the book, in a sense, that um, if you compare um, skeletons of people who died at roughly the same time, and you want to know uh, which of these skeletons was in an agrarian society, an early agrarian society, and which was outside uh, that society, that is to say, hunter-gatherer foragers, uh, then the forager skeletons uh, are both um, longer, that is to say they, they're taller, and their bones show uh, almost no evidence of nutritional deficiencies. The people in the agricultural uh, zones uh, are both shorter, showing a kind of stuntedness um, and a restricted diet, and they show uh, bone signatures of... Um, nutritional deficiencies that come from a largely grain-based diet. For me, the great surprise of doing this research and trying to sort of write what we now know about the earliest states was the fact that we have evidence that people had domesticated plants, that is to say, and actually planted them, um, 9,000 B.C. Um, And the story of civilization is a civilization is a story I think that um, essentially claims that once we discovered we could domesticate grains, we wanted nothing more than to be able to settle down and stop roaming, uh, and that we then start became planters. Uh, that agricultural life was a superior life in terms of leisure, nutrition, and so on. The fact is that the evidence of these first domesticated plants occurs 4,000 years before anything like an agricultural community living largely by planting and agriculture uh, pops into view. So the question someone has to explain, which I try to explain, is why, if you like, the possibility for planting existed for 4,000 years before it became widespread. Does domestication begin with agriculture becoming a sellable commodity, uh, something that can be put into market? Does private ownership, does the market create domestication? No, I think domestication, I think people, first of all, I think um, the more one looks into this, um, the more it becomes difficult to discern um, the differences between uh, domesticated and undomesticated plants in in the following sense, that there are a lot of different shades of domestication. So there are wild stands of wheat that you can still find in Turkey in which you can harvest enough in three weeks from the wild wheat uh, in order to feed a family for a whole year. Um, the, what people did, I think, was to replant some of that close to their domicile over time. Um, they would save the seeds that didn't fall off, um, 
and that could then be easily threshed. They would save the ones that were large seeds. So you have this long process of the domestication uh, of plants. And the problem is that if you are actually planting um, in and plow agriculture with plow animals and so on that we associate with early agriculture, it's a lot of labor. And if you are living in an abundant wetland with lots of wild uh, game uh, migrations and so on, uh, you can actually uh, live a, uh, a life with a more varied diet and much less work without undertaking plow agriculture. So it's the drudgery and work of plow agriculture that was uh, only resorted to when either you had coercion by states or you had the decrease in wild game and an increase in population. That is, there's some problems that I can't solve in this book because the archaeologists are still debating them. So why planting became more generalized over time is something that's very much in dispute. Some claim it's because the population got so dense that you had to make more out of a smaller piece of land. Some claim that large game was hunted out. That's certainly true in the new world. Um, and some people claim that this has to do with states corralling and collecting population and holding it in a state uh, in a state core. But it's clear that the, this is the um, back-to-the-wall theory of the adoption of agriculture. And I think all of these different hypotheses uh, uh, are uh, explanations for why people were forced into the extra labor of agriculture uh, against their will. How much does belief in the narrative of the progress driven by domestication lead to a belief that controlling the world instead of working with the world is what's best for humans? Does belief in the domestication narrative teach us that the world is ours to do with what we want and ignore any potential consequences? Uh, that's that's a beautiful question. It's not one that I tackle, but it seems I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's a, an extremely important question. Um, the um, this question of man as um, the owner of the natural world, able to shape it to uh, his will and according to his desires. A lot of people would claim that this is actually a product of monotheism. Um, of a kind of the urban religions that grew up in the Middle East, uh, both Christianity, Islam, uh, and Buddhism would also um, be part of that uh, as well, Judaism. Uh, the, so the argument is that the idea of a single God who gives man a domination over nature, which is certainly uh, true of the Judeo-Christian heritage and of the Islamic heritage as well, because it derives from the same sources, um, that's the argument that monotheism results in what you describe as the domination of nature. Um, animism, or if you like, paganism, uh, pre-monotheistic religions, what's interesting about them is that the world is, if you like, enchanted. That is to say, every hill, every stream, every rock... Uh, has a kind of spirit of its own. Every river, um, every natural object is, if you like, a kind, has a, 
has a spirit that has to be somehow taken account of or placated uh, and so on. And, and I think that there is, for that reason, both more, of course, hunters and gatherers pay close attention to nature in a way that agriculturalists don't have to. Um, but I would argue, uh, I don't argue that much in the book, but I would argue that that world of uh, spirits in nature that is pre-monotheism is a view of nature that is more likely to be respective of the limits of nature, that is to say, foragers who uh, will only take uh, hunt males, who will preserve small fish so that they uh, will be around for a sustainable yield much later. There's this kind of sense of uh, respecting the natural limits and rhythms of the natural world, uh, in both in self-interest and in a respect for its own agency. You write about how we understand the power of the state, and especially through the way that we're taught history. How much do we overstate and exaggerate the power of early empires like those of Greece or the C- or Caesar's Rome or Alexander's Macedonia? And how does that affect the way in which we view the state? Well, uh, here we get into the narrative and how we learn about civilizations. And of course, our museums and our history books um are saturated with what we learn from the written records and the objects and the stone monuments uh, and so on that are characteristic of the early civilizations. So we essentially, I have a, a way of putting this that, you know, if we build in biodegrade, excuse me, in permanent materials like stone and masonry and so on in a single place and you create a concentrated uh, area of monuments, then you get a lot more pages in the history book, uh, partly because you've created the archaeological sites and objects that then make it into the museums and history books. It may be true in a case like that, that there's a much larger population that is spread over the countryside uh, and that builds in biodegradable materials and spreads its trash widely. And they don't get any history, they don't get any pages in the history book because um, they're not, if you like, collectible. And so I think our um, our histories are systematically biased against non-state populations um, who don't leave the writing and uh, physical remains that are so important for that narrative of the early civilizations. And they may have been at the same time of course, incredibly sophisticated people uh, as well in terms of technology and metallurgy. We know enough about that now to find places in Southeast Asia where very sophisticated metallurgy and pottery is taking place, but there are no states. You write that if the formation of the earliest states were shown to be largely a coercive enterprise, the vision of the state, one dear to the heart of such social contract theorists as Hobbes and Locke, as a magnet of civil peace, social disorder, and freedom from fear, drawing people in by its charisma would have to be reexamined. To what degree is the state 
today still protecting us from those on the periphery? And to what degree is the state today, in your opinion, causing more chaos than those on the fringes who still oppose, at least relatively, a modern sedentary life? I, um, it, it is true that when states have tried to grab people, um, and I think the oldest state project in the world is to collect people and force them to live in a fixed place. And every time we have taken uh, mobile people, either pastoralists or foragers, hunters and gatherers, and forced them to settle down, we've found ourselves with a small war on our hands. And most Native American uh, tribes were only settled as a result of defeat in war. So uh, the idea that they couldn't wait to be settled and become agriculturalists doesn't make any sense at all in terms of that particular uh, that particular history. The uh, I would say, however, that the non-state peoples today uh, are uh, relatively powerless vis-a-vis states. The states now have what I think of as distance demolishing technologies. Uh, uh, tanks and all-weather roads and drones uh, and uh, military hardware that allow them to project their power uh, even to sort of jungles uh, and mountaintops and swamps and so on. So it seems to me that we are, I think that this is the sort of last enclosure movement and uh, the, the there are still non-state peoples, uh, but they're diminishing and they're habitually on the defensive. If people pick up the New York Times today, there was a, uh, several bombs exploded in Chile in connection with the Pope's uh, upcoming visit. And at least it appears that part of this was an effort by militant activists to defend the Mapuche, uh, who are a kind of non-state people whose lands are threatened by loggers and hydroelectric sites. But um, the um, the world of non-state peoples is uh, uh, diminishing or, in many cases, has simply disappeared. I've got one last question for you, James. We have been speaking with political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott, author of Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. James is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has been awarded resident fellowships at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, the Institute for Advanced Study, and the Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT. And he's author of eight books, including the classics Seeing Like a State, The Art of Not Being Governed, The Moral Economy of the Peasant, and weapons of the week. We have one last question for you, James. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. In a review of your book, At the Nation, by a past guest on our show a couple of times, Samuel Moyne. Moyne writes, Scott's view of the state has always been attractive to some leftists who have found solace in the depic- in his depiction of the microscopic possibilities of flouting a state power that they cannot overthrow. But Scott has also proved popular with another group, economic libertarians. They understand that he is their ally. Reading him with a squint, they appreciate his vociferous critiques of state power as abetting their own dreams of freedom. Scott is visibly nervous about this fan club since even after he gave up <laughs> any flirtation with Marxism, he has always viewed free markets as breeding their own sorts of hierarchy and oppression. So, who would you rather have in your fan club? 
libertarians, <laughs> libertarians or anarchists? Which one? Uh, you're, <laughs> I, I'm going to allow you to uh, force me into that corner, and as if I had to choose, uh, <laughs> and the answer, and the answer would be anarchists. Um, the point, the my 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 quarrel with libertarians, although. Um, in a Venn diagram, I share some of my views with uh, libertarians. Is that libertarians, as near as I can tell, uh, have no problem with massive differences in wealth and power uh, in terms of the distribution of property, uh, which, from my particular point of view, means uh, the absolute corruption of democracy. Uh, and so it seems to me that um, it's impossible in a sense, to have those kinds of freedoms that democracy offer uh, in a libertarian world in which any difference in disparity in wealth and power that can be used by political influence is somehow excused. My, my, my quarrel with anarchism is that I don't think that we can live without the state. The abolition of the state is a sort of fantasy and utopian one by the anarchists. I think it's unachievable. So the question is, um, we, we will live with Leviathan, we'll live with the state, uh, and the great task is to try to tame it. Uh, and alas, I'm relatively um, not, I'm not very optimistic about our ability to tame the state. So I'm left in a, um, in a rather uh, pessimistic uh, position of uh, not thinking we can get rid of it and not thinking uh, that we appear to be on our way to taming it and making it do our bidding for an entire people rather than a small elite. James, that was an appropriately hellish response to the question from hell, so I really appreciate (laughs) your answer. Thank you so much for being on this week's show. This is really an amazing book and a fantastic conversation. I truly appreciate this honor. Uh, Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. Take care, James. Bye-bye. You are listening to a special annual Best Of episode of This Is Hell. That was James C. Scott in an interview from January of this year, and now we're going to have Max Haven on in an interview from October of last year about financialization and colonialism. Stay tuned. Financialization leads to racism. Financialization leads to authoritarianism. Financialization leads to disparity, inequality. It destroys communities. It's a threat to our planet. And it's the backbone of today's screwed up economy. Here to tell us what makes financialization so damn evil, author, organizer, and educator Max Haven wrote the Roar magazine article, Financialization, Precarity, and Reactionary Authoritarianism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, The article we will be discussing today is an excerpt from Max's prescient 2014 book, Cultures of Financialization, Fictitious Capital and Popular Culture and Everyday Life, which was released last month in paperback. Max is the co-director of the Radical Imagination Project, and you can can find out more about them at radicalimagination.org. You can also go to maxhaven.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at maxhaven. So uh, you're concerned about the precariousness caused by financialization, as University of London professor Costas Lapavitsas has 
written, financialization conveys the penetration of the financial system into every nook and cranny of society, including housing, education, health, and other areas of life that were previously relatively immune. Evidence that financialization represents a deep transformation of mature economies is offered by the global crisis of 2007 through 2009. The penetration of finance into the everyday life of households has changed the outlook, mentality, and even morality of daily life. Financial calculation evaluates everything in dollars and cents, transforming the most basic goods, above all housing, into investments. Its logic has affected even the young, who have traditionally been idealistic and scornful of pecuniary calculation. How aware do you think the public is of the negative impact of financialization? In particular, how aware are those who are angry with what the United States has become from less stable job security, stagnating wages, greater wealth disparity? How aware are they that it's all linked to financialization? Well, I think there is an awareness of the effects of financialization in the sense that the vast majority of the population who don't happen to be extremely wealthy feel like somebody constantly has a hand in their pocket taking their money. I mean, part of the financialization scheme is not only the fact that we're constantly in debt uh, or constantly being forced to sort of invest in various things in order to protect ourselves from the market. It also has to do with the increase of fines, the increase of fees, and the sense that you can't turn anywhere without uh, basically having to pay someone. The problem is that though I think a huge number of people are extremely aware of the effects of this, they're not aware of the cause. So they're not aware that this has a systemic uh, characteristic. And instead, they see uh, at least uh, many white people imagine that the hand in their pocket is that of racialized people of quote-unquote special interest groups that the government is allegedly giving handouts to. So there's an awareness of what is happening, but there's not an awareness of the system that's behind it. And in the absence of an awareness of that system, we see the rise and growth of kind of revanchist and uh, furious forms of racism and uh, sort of marginalization. You write how within today's financialized world, precariousness is the norm, not the exception. It is worse than many such manifestations precisely because it it is so successful in privatizing precariousness through the logic of individualism and competition. How much do individualism and competition cause job insecurity? Is an embrace of individualism at odds with having steady and secure jobs? Because I often hear the same people praising individualism and competition, but complaining about the lack of uh, work stability? Well, I mean, on some level, individuality is a good thing. I mean, many of us have been arguing for years that people need to have some sort of sense of agency over who they are, how they define themselves, and how they express themselves. The problem is that when we tie our sense of individuality to the market and to our ability to compete with one another for money, we do a grave injustice to our own individuality and our own creativity and imagination. And we also contribute to a system that's sort of objectively destroying us and destroying the world. But I mean, one, so in a way, we've been sold the lie that in order to lead the life that we want, in order to actualize ourselves, in order to express our creativity and imagination, we need to throw ourselves headlong into the market and adopt the, the sort of mantle of the entrepreneur or the financier But the problem is that that uh, is actually contributing to a system of vast inequality and suffering where even those who most enthusiastically uh, take up this uh, 
social role of being the investor and the entrepreneur, even among those who most enthusiastically do so, the vast majority will fail. And when they fail, there is no safety net anymore to catch them. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty destructive ideology, to say the least. To what degree do you think uh, our lack of being critical of the system is rooted in racism? Because I found this to be one of the more fascinating parts of your writing. Do we refuse to blame the system and instead embrace inv- individualism while turning our back on community because it somehow excuses or rationalizes or gives logic to racism? I think absolutely. And, you know, the, there's a long history of uh, capitalist inequality justifying itself through racism. I mean, we know from the historical record and also from the anthropological and scientific literature that whiteness is itself a social construction. It is a, 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 a flexible category that certain populations get included in and not included in. Uh, historically, and we can see that with the way that the Irish went from being a racialized population to being understood as a white population, Jews, Southern Europeans, as well in the United States. And all this took place in order to divide and conquer the working class and working people from making common cause. So race has always been used in America and elsewhere as a means to divide people from looking at who their real enemy is, which is the peop- the looters in society, the very wealthiest population that is controlling people's labor, that is exploiting the planet, and that is destroying society. Now, what's different, perhaps, in our present era is that these forms of racial divide-and-conquer tactics have been tied to this kind of financialized individualism. So on the one hand, this means that uh, we are given this uh, idea that we've now, because there are no longer, allegedly, there are no longer uh, legal or uh, or sort of policy-oriented exclusions of racialized people from participation in the market, as there were, for instance, under Jim Crow or previous regimes, that now somehow we're all equal to compete with one another and thrive in a market society. But of course, the reality is that if you look at net worth, if you look at earnings, if you look at practically any measurement, you can see that racism, especially against black people, but also against Latino people, against indigenous people, and against other racialized people in the United States, Canada, and other countries, is in some ways more prevalent than it has ever been. But we are furnished with this mythology that if we all just compete, if we all embrace entrepreneurialism, a sort of investor-like individualism, we can all succeed and thrive. And within that framework, racism, the fundamental systemic and structural racism that is at the bedrock of our economy, becomes invisible. And people blame individuals for their failure to thrive within a poisoned and poisonous system. You write, it is vital to note that in North America and Europe and in different ways elsewhere, this precarious vitriol cannot be separated from the history of race and racism. Older modes of racial enslavement, apartheid and segregation serve the same function, similarly allowing those read as white to posit a superior form of humanity, which both conclu- uh, occluded a shared precariousness and elevated the material wealth and security of whites at the expense of immiserated, exploited, and impoverished non-whites in different ways in different times and places. To what extent do you think the public doesn't see financialization as morally unacceptable, as racist, as slavery, apartheid, and segregation, because it is seen as being without any immorality or morality as being objectively equal to all due to it being simply a tool of the market. 
I think that's absolutely true. There is a sense that markets are colorblind, uh, that the market simply rewards hard work, uh, entrepreneurialism, and inventiveness. But of course, if we go back into the history of the market and we go back to the history of financialization, we can see that it has always been otherwise and still is otherwise today. I mean, just very briefly, we talk about financialization and finance, the so-called fire sector, as it's called, of the capitalist economy. That's finance, insurance, and real estate as being sort of the, the, the crux of, um, of a financialized economy. And let's just briefly go back through each of those different things. Finance, like high finance and banking insurance, and real estate. Well, what is the fundamental institution of finance? Is the Joint Stock Corporation. The Joint Stock Corporation was invented in Holland and England explicitly as a technology to use to engage in colonial adventure overseas. The cost of financing a voyage overseas to go on a trading mission or on a settler colonial mission or to dominate another group of people or to take slaves from Africa, these are extremely expensive, extremely risky ventures many financiers need to come together and have some sort of technique or technology in order to be able to finance this. This is where we get the corporation that still persists to this day. I mean, the country that I live in, in Canada, was founded by the world's oldest corporation, the Hudson Bay Company. The United States, to a very real extent, at least the English part of it, was founded by the Virginia Company. So on a very real deep level, the the fundamental technology of finance has always been tied up in the histories of race and racism. Similarly, the insurance industry, there's a lot of very interesting scholarship that's come out in the last 20 years that links the emergence of modern insurance as an institution to the histories of insuring uh, enslaved uh, cargo, insuring enslaved uh, people uh, so that their owners could make money whether they lived or died. And finally, if we look at real estate, which is by some estimates 70% of the, uh, the financial economy, you know, and in, in your quote from Kostas Lapovitsas that you began with, he notes that this is kind of the crux of how society becomes financialized. Well, the idea of private property, the idea that you can own land, this is a relatively recent invention, uh, though it is crucial to the kind of financialized order. And where does that that invention come from, this idea that you can own land? Well, to a very real extent, it comes from both the ideologies and the practices of settler colonialism, where white populations were sent overseas to countries like the United States and Canada to steal indigenous land, murder indigenous people, and clear space for profitability. So even if we go back into history, this question of the financialization has always been racialized. And that leads to the situation now where, for instance, I was just looking at the statistics this morning, you know, only one third of white people own any financial assets at all. That is stocks and bonds and investments. And that includes their retirement savings. But compared to that, only 10% of blacks in the United States own any financial assets at all, and only 6% of Latinos. So on the one hand, we have a financial system that vastly disproportionately serves and enriches a tiny, tiny elite, uh, but it is also highly racialized, uh, it has a highly racialized characteristics, where blacks, Latinos, and other racialized people are fundamentally shut out from this massive engine of wealth generation. So uh, you have an addenda and you write that were I to approach this topic again, I would also stress more centrally the ways in which settler colonialism, as you were just talking about, destroys and uh, denigrates a cooperative relationship with land most horrifically by seeking the systematic elimination of autonomous indigenous presence on and power on land. So how much is the goal of colonialism, the goal of markets to destroy a local population's relationship with land? 
I think it's absolutely essential, and we need only look at the um, uh, the the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline by the Standing Rock Sioux to see how this works today. You basically had a massive alliance of financialized corporations and a financialized government conspire to try and wipe out uh, the last vestiges of indigenous resistance to a colonial worldview. So we can see today that this is simply the modern financialized form of the old Indian wars, of the clearing of the plains, of the attacks on autonomous ways of life and relationships to land outside of that pathological notion that all land needs to be turned into private property. Now, the unfortunate thing is that in North America and the United States and Canada, whiteness has for a long time been tied to the ability or the dream of owning land. You know, in this case, owning other people's land. It's stealing land. And unfortunately, there's a strong sense that one's autonomy and one's ability to uh, lead one's own life, to lead a life of dignity, is tied to individual land ownership. So we still have a huge mythology of the cowboy, of the settler, of the person who goes away from society or, or takes a step away from society in order to grow their own food. And to a certain extent, there's a nobility to that. But it still participates in a colonial fantasy of individualized land ownership. What needs to be vanquished in order for the financialized worldview, of which that sort of cowboy mentality is as part, uh, is the idea that we could care for land collectively and that land would care for us, that we could have a deep relationality to the land. And that's something that only now, I think, are non-Indigenous people beginning to see the value of in, in their partnerships on the front lines with Indigenous people to resist this sort of financialized enclosure and destruction of land. So we're only beginning to be able to reclaim a different understanding of our relationship to the, the rest of the world, the rest of creation, that might actually save us from the incredible ecological and humanitarian catastrophe that's been unleashed by years of colonialism and financialization. So that's the intersectionality between indigenous rights and the problems with financialization and uh, maybe an issue of class and race. How far would ending financialization, or at the very least muting it to some extent, how far would that go to addressing aspects of racism that groups like Black Lives Matter are protesting? Well, I think it's certainly part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. I mean, one of the things I always worry about when I write about precariousness and something I tried to do in this article is is point out that, you know, we have a myth that we've made about what came allegedly before precariousness. And that myth is usually that, you know, in the post-war period, under the New Deal, under the welfare state, people weren't precarious. And then you see the 1970s, you see the rise of neoliberalism, you see the rise of financialization. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people who previously weren't precarious become precarious. Uh, and that's a bad thing. And obviously, there's a measure of truth to that story. But we need to go back and question the prehistory of precariousness, so to speak. That is to say that in the post-war period, I mean, the non-precariousness of uh, white people was bought at the expense, and specifically of white men, was bought at the expense of a whole range of other populations. I mean, the post-war prosperity that came to countries like the United States and Canada was built on the back of neo-colonial pillage of the so-called third world. Uh, so there was certainly a huge amount of precariousness all around the world for those years as the United States and Canada and other countries engaged in, as, as your previous guest was uh, mentioning, uh, these kind of proxy wars of the Cold War 
to create resource colonies and to create labor colonies for itself through new market techniques. During that post-war period, racialized people in the United States continued to suffer incredible rates of poverty and marginalization. Uh, you know, even within the trade union movement, there was not a real awareness of the depth and depravity of racism. Uh, women during the post-war period, I mean, the feminist, the second wave feminist movement emerged because of the systemic discrimination against and exploitation of women within that post-war economy. So when we think about undoing precariousness, we need to look beyond and desire to return to the welfare state that was in the uh, sort of before the neoliberal financialized era of the 1970s and 80s. We need to think, I think, instead about how do we fundamentally transform our society such that no human being ever needs to feel existentially precarious because of the economy? I mean, I think we just need to ask much more fundamental questions about what a society is for and how we can care for each other. Um, and that's what's going to allow us to overcome the twinned uh, evils of, on the one hand, a financialized system which is transforming us all into you know, hyper-paranoid individualist risk-takers, and on the other, a system that sees fit to leave whole racialized populations essentially to die, either at the hands of the police, at the hands of poverty, or at the hands of any number of other ills that are unleashed by incredible inequality. But you're right that as a result, we should not expect that the almost universal adoption of the free market will lead to any sort of peace or cosmopolitanism in the world as neoliberal thinkers like Frederick Hayek or Francis Fukuyama believed. Nor should we assume that the financialized age of austerity will prompt such a wave of popular discontent that radical social transformation is inevitable. So neither peace nor revolution will come of financialization. To what degree does the public support the precariousness caused by financialization while being critical of the circumstances it causes? Well, I think that's, that's the huge problem. That's the huge challenge of our age, is to show that another system is indeed possible and necessary. Um, because the only option that this system leaves us right now is uh, essentially to embrace the kind of order of risk and risk-taking that uh, the sort of paradigm of the financier and the entrepreneur leaves us with. And in that circumstance, what we will see is that populations increasingly gravitate towards electing leaders who promise to help them uh, be more entrepreneurial and more risk-taking, and who promise to protect them from the market in some way. That is essentially an order of strongmen that we are seeing elected around the world. That is, I think, the rise of a new sort of authoritarianism, which has its roots in systemic racism and structural racism. It also has its roots in a long history of modern authoritarian governments. But essentially, we're looking at the, the public increasingly gravitating towards leaders who promise a kind of uh, thuggish protection for a set of entrepreneurs and risk-takers. And is it any surprise, then, that we see around the world that the kind of uh, clownish uh, reality television entrepreneur or financier becomes the elevated to the sort of figurehead and ruler of the nation? This person can promise to, to take care of people like him, like always inevitably a him, it seems, uh, and increase people's capacity to uh, play the markets, to play the slot. I mean... Casinos have always been run by the mafia, and when we turn our whole society into a casino, we shouldn't be 
confused or surprised when a mafioso takes over. How much should the fight against white supremacy, white privilege, the Antifa fight against neo-fascism and authoritarianism, how much should it be a fight against financialization? Well, I think when you look at who's at the head of the financial world, fighting financialization is a fight against white supremacy. I mean, there's practically no people of color uh, at the heads of major financial corporations, and the people who benefit from financialization are disproportionately wealthy white people. That doesn't mean, however, that the system would be any better if we happen to have a few more colored faces in the halls of power. Uh, we've already seen the complete failure of that, both on the corporate level and the governmental failure, or on the governmental level as well. So I think that that fight against white supremacy is fundamentally one that would target the financial elite. And we also know that the financial elite, a good portion of them, are very supportive of neo-fascist tendencies. Because there, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with authoritarianism for finance. Finance essentially wants a certain kind of political stability in order that it can continue to do its destabilizing work of privatizing and corporatizing every aspect of our society. They, you know, authoritarianism serves financialization quite well. So we should understand that these fights are connected. I'll say, you know, on, a, on one level, on the direct level of everyday life, the direct confrontation with neo-fascist organizers, the Antifa fight is extremely important to be able to protect our communities. But that uh, fight is about creating a shelter for our communities within which we can do the much harder and longer and more sustained work of building alternative institutions, alternative forms of grassroots democracy, alternative forms of social reproduction, that is, alternative forms of care for one another, that will actually allow us to exit and fight the financialized economy uh, for the long term and build the kind of radical alternatives that we need to that cut across the differences of race and class and gender that have been sort of imposed upon us uh, by our masters. You're right. To the extent that we are made more and more precarious, we brew an existential anger, a self-loathing that can easily be displaced onto convenient others. How much does self-loathing keep us from radical social transformation? How much does that self-loathing lead to a belief that we can't change the system? I think it's incredibly powerful. I mean, one of the problems is that as financialization takes hold of our imagination, it reinforces or accelerates a kind of um, pathological narcissism within our society where we increasingly can't see um, the kind of social or collective impacts or reasons for people's behaviors and for the, the situations that face us. So we increasingly blame ourselves for failures and we can't see that if we want to actually change our life situation, we need to work collectively. Now, I've already kind of spoken about how that works in terms of financialization and transforming each of us into a kind of risk manager and preventing us from seeing that we need a systemic solution. But I would also say that this diffuses a lot of our understandings about how to fight the system as well. Financialization has so trained us to imagine everything as a matter of the individual that we have fixated on individualist solutions to problems of racism or problems of settler colonialism. We imagine that the most uh, just thing, that especially those of us who enjoy some measure of privilege within this society, although what is privilege on a dying planet, uh, we've convinced ourselves that 
our job is simply to kind of flagellate and castigate ourselves and to wallow in kind of white guilt around uh, the fact that we are privileged by the system, rather than seeing that there's no, there is no uh, way that any amount of individual action is going to be able to overcome a white supremacist system. No matter how virtuous or how saintly you are as an individual, your only chance of overcoming this system is to gather together with other people and to rise up against it collectively, to create new institutions and new relationships that are fundamentally beyond the imagination if we simply fixate on political change as a matter of individualism and individual personal transformation. Those things are important, no doubt. We do need to transform our minds. We need to transform our souls. We need to transform our behaviors. That's a work that we will never be finished doing in a society that has been steeped in racism. You know, hopefully our children's children's children won't, ha- won't have to do it. But that cannot be the be-all and end-all of our politics. We also need to think of ways of transforming the world collectively. And that's going to require a much slower, much more difficult work of building solidarity, building alliances, building alternative institutions uh, at the grassroots level. And even though we only have a couple of minutes left, Max, I still have to ask you the question from hell, as we do for all of our (laughs) guests. The question from hell is the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Max Haven wrote the Roar (laughs) magazine article, Financialization, Precarity, and Reactionary Authoritarianism, which is an excerpt from Max's 2014 book, Cultures of Financialization, that was released last month in paperback. So our question from hell for you is, how much does financialization contribute to self loathing and shame culture, but also trolling. Is trolling a manifestation of the symptoms of uh, uh, financialization in online social media culture? Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it comes back to this question of individualism. We live in a society where all the tools that we once might have had to try and transform our world together and to come together and understand ourselves as more than simply individuals have been stripped of us. And we have whole new generations who've never experienced uh, those sorts of ideas or the the feeling of what it feels like to change society. If you have no sense that you can change society collectively, if you have not grown up with a sense of social movement being successful and being the space where people transform and where they transform each other, then it makes total sense that your entire horizon for politics is online trolling, because at least you have an impact, right? At least in a world that has completely denuded you of any sort of agency, of any sort of potential to transform the world around you, at least when you go online and get a rise out of someone that is your opponent, you feel like you've done something in a world that is completely falling apart all around you. So I think trolling absolutely is, is, uh, is tied in with this whole, this whole mess. Um, and again, the answer to trolling is not a kind of reverse concern trolling where you go online and either tell people to be calm and be nicer to each other, or you go on and have online battles with people you disagree with. I mean, that can be cathartic, perhaps. I don't particularly enjoy it, but many people do. The answer to it is to say, let's actually come together in our communities. Let's organize. Let's build solidarity. Let's Let's decide now is the time that we are going to actually begin to change this world collectively and rediscover muscles in our collective power that have atrophied over the years. Our ability to come together and provide solidarity, to provide care, and to provide a sense of possibility 
that comes when you know that there are hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people with you as well. Max, I really appreciate you being back on the show. Do not be surprised if I bug you in the very near future to have you back on. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much. Take care. You are listening to a special best of episode of This Is Hell. That was Max Haven, an interview from October of last year. And now you're going to hear one with Andreas Malm from February of this year about the fossil fuel economy and its rise alongside colonialism. Stay tuned. We have cut ourselves off from nature. So is it any wonder that climate change is not the top news story or our politicians' number one concern? Yes, something still can be done about climate change, but that's going to take a radical transformation right now. Doesn't look like this world, or at least the United States, is up to. Here to get us caught up on the state of climate change, returning to This Is Hell, Andreas Malm is author of The Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Andreas. Thank you so much, Chuck. You're, Pleasure to be with you again. You may remember Andreas being on our show back in December 2015 to discuss his book, Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize, which is awarded annually to a book which exemplifies the best and most innovative new writing in or about the Marxist tradition. You write, we continue, live, we continue to live on a stage where there is nothing but the present past and future alike, have dissolved into a perpetual now, leaving us imprisoned in a moment without links backwards or forwards. Only the dimension of space extends in all directions across the seamless surface of a globalized world in which everyone is connected to everyone else through uncountable threads, but time has ceased flowing. What do you mean by time has ceased flowing? Has it ceased flowing just recently, did something happen? Is this unique in human history? Well, this is a, a retelling of a diagnosis of the so-called postmodern condition. It's it's not it's not really my analysis. It's it's one developed by Frederick Jameson, the American cultural theorist. But I think it pinpoints a certain type of logic that is most uh, visible today, perhaps in the way that people interact with their. Uh, technologies, notably smartphones, the way that people are glued to the screens and uh, caught up in a perpetual flow of uh, information that they can uh, access by swiping the screen or touching a button. And this makes for a a, a kind of mindset where um, space extends in all directions in the sense that you, you can access anything instantly, but there is precious little in the sense of the being integrated into any kind of history with a deep past and a deep future and um, a, a strange way of isolating oneself from the biosphere and uh, locking oneself into a cloister of, of digital life, of virtual life, as it were, uh, precisely at the moment when we need to be more closely attuned to what's going on in physical nature, and uh, to extend our attention spans to very, very long-term processes, such as climate change playing out for the next thousands of years, depending on what we do now. And it's a bit of a cultural paradox that precisely when we need to be more, uh, more integrated into our material environment and be uh, um, more... Uh, attend 
relative to the very long-term consequences of our daily actions, we are caught up in this um, extreme fragmentation of the in- of the attention span and the uh, this this cyber sphere or the the or the augmented reality of our digital life. And you write how we are already experiencing climate change. There are people who are still in climate change denial or people who think that it's going to be happening to us in the future. But you point out in many ways how we're already being affected by climate change. And you write, the experience is becoming well-nigh universal. A majority of the human population has been exposed to abnormally warm weather over the past decade. Such man-made weather, however, is never made in the present. Why don't we perceive man-made weather being made in the present? Why don't we see the impact that we are currently having on climate change, that we are having it right now? Why do we always see it as something uh, uh, that occurred in the past with CO2 emissions due to 19th or 20th century capitalism? Well, I think that the perception of climate change is very different uh, among different groups of people and in different places. And that, that depends on uh, the, the position one has in, in the world economy and uh, how one's daily life is linked to, to fossil fuels and also ideological perceptions. So, for instance, it has been demonstrated again and again that people that are deeply invested in conservative ideology and climate denialism uh, have such strong blinkers that they... Uh, that they fail to adapt their views to an actual personal experience of weather shock. So in your country, in the U.S., for instance, you, you've had a, a, an, a, I mean, innumerable cases of climate-related shocks over the past years. But some people are capable of absorbing these shocks into their perception that, no, there is no global warming, or these are just uh, natural fluctuations. And that's because of uh, certain... <laughs> certain mechanisms of suppressing facts that are extremely strong among some people. And it's not only for this phenomenon in the U.S., it's very much a phenomenon here in Europe nowadays as well, when we see the rise and rise and rise of the far right that often denies that climate change is a problem that we need to do anything about, even though Europeans experience more and more of the climate impact. On the other hand, some people on this planet have no choice but to realize that they are caught up in a war. So, for instance, I was on the island of Dominica last August. Three weeks after I got home, Hurricane Maria crashed into that island and just completely raised the whole island, just destroyed all of the infrastructure and, uh, and cut off the forest cover in one, uh, in one blow. And the people uh, of Dominica have, have since developed... Uh, uh, a kind of um, almost martial mentality or, or uh, discourse where they, they see themselves as caught up in a war against climate change and fighting for their very survival as a people and as a nation. So in some parts of the globe where you, you, you see poor people directly getting their lives destroyed by climate change, you have a very keen appreciation of what's going on. But the, the perceptions of, of, uh, of global warming are, are very much differentiated according to, um, to, to social position and to ideology. 
And I want to get talked a little bit about uh, this concept of pre-trauma that we're already having from climate change. But you write when I want to stay on this idea of time just for a moment. Uh, you write when early 20th century philosopher Walter Benjamin roamed the cities of interwar Europe. He jotted down a signpost for further investigation, and it read on the double meaning of the term temp. Tomp in uh, French, that's T-E-M-P-S, Tomp as in weather and time. Most likely the semantic overlap is rooted in the primordial experience of the seasonal cycle drawing the calendar of labor. The older days when uh, the olden days when sun, cloud, rain, and snow set the rhythm of hunting, sowing, reaping, and all sorts of other activities. What happens, what do you think happens when weather no longer works like clockwork, when time and weather become disconnected? Well, well, yeah, I think there is a, a new kind of connection between time and weather because uh, when you have extreme weather events that are linked to climate change, they are the result of past combustion of fossil fuels. So to take again the example of the, the, the Caribbean hurricanes that, that struck uh, um, islands such as Dominica, they were the result of all the greenhouse gases that had built up in the atmosphere over time, over a couple of centuries. So uh, extreme weather today uh, is, is linked to a particular history of uh, burning fossil fuels. And when that history uh, erupts into the present, it's, it makes for, it creates a new kind of relation to time. History falls in on the present, so to speak, uh, precisely because physically the, the climatic events that we experience wouldn't have happened if it were not for the the two centuries of ever deeper investment in the fossil economy. So um, uh, this is also, of course, what, what we what we refer to when we say that soon it would be too late. What that means is that if we continue to build up greenhouse gases in the atmosphere at this rate, we'll experience climatic shocks that will we will be unable to deal with in a reasonable way. Um, and uh, in that sense, the past is always catching up on us in a warming world. We we get uh, we get chained to a past that we cannot uh, alter because it's the past, um, and uh, uh, it, that is also a reason to to I think investigate that history and see what has brought us into this to this warming place and and. Uh, um, uh, how did we get get caught up in this mess over the past centuries, and what can we do about it before it really is too late? And it's it's becoming later by the hour. That's the the, the 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 very special temporality of climate change. The more greenhouse gases there are out in the atmosphere, the more severe the impacts will be, and so on and so on. And you were talking about in Dominica the. Uh response by the citizenry to react to climate change is like a kind of war that was taking place. And you're right, we should conclude that building a new coal-fired power plant or continuing to operate an old one or drilling for oil or expanding an airport or planning for a highway is now irrational violence. If we view such developments as irrational violence, how different, differently would we address such developments? Would we ch- change to a point of view that the people of Dominica have, where we react to this as a war? And is that a good strategy for combating climate change? Yeah, yeah, I actually do think that the war analogy makes sense. And uh, many people have drawn parallels to the current emergency with the emergency faced by 
the United States, for instance, uh, with the outbreak of the Second World War, when all the nation's resources were directed towards one single goal, namely defeating the enemy. And that required that the, the state took some very radical control over the economy and, for instance, ordered the car companies to cease producing private cars and only produce tanks and other war material. And uh, we're in a similar moment in the sense that we're facing an emergency, and it isn't a, a war that is uh, that we can pin down to uh, uh, an, an alien entity such as Nazi Germany, but it's it's an emergency that um, that we, as a planetary community, as humankind, as a whole, uh, that we are facing, and it requires dramatic measures similar to the ones uh, in, in the war emergency uh, in the Second World War. And that would mean that governments start to take some tough decisions for a start, a moratorium on new coal-fired power plants or oil uh, platforms or pipelines, and then uh, some, some very stringent regulations and decisions for how to shift completely from fossil fuels to renewable energy in a very short period of time. What we're seeing now is that the renewable energy sectors around the world are growing, but at the same time you have additional airports, you have new pipelines, you have a continued expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure around the world, and as long as, as that happens, it doesn't matter how many solar panels we put up or, or wind farms we build, we have to completely shift from the one energy source to the other. And I don't see that uh, any other agent can do that than states, governments that actually make emergency decisions about what is required. The only viable alternative, uh, as far as I uh, am aware, is some kind of geoengineering, which means that, again, states would have to intervene, but not in the economic system, but in the climate system, by injecting soot into the atmosphere or something like that to cool the planet. So uh, because it's so late and because so much has been damaged and so much has been burned, the only entity that can potentially mitigate uh, the disasters is, I think, the state, pretty much as in, in a war scenario. It can be either by geoengineering or it can be by some kind of economic planning. And I very much prefer the second because uh, uh, geoengineering comes with many consequences that we don't know how they will play out. But, you know, we're told here in the United States, we're raised to believe that the market will solve everything. If there is such high demand, global demand for a fight against climate change, then why can't we expect or depend upon the private sector to fulfill that demand, supply that demand for a fight against climate change? Why do we have to look towards the state? Why can't we look toward the private sector? Because there are plenty of people in the private sector, or not plenty of people, there are actually quite few, but they make a lot of money from digging up fossil fuels and burning them, or give, selling them to others who burn them. Uh, it's quite clear at the, from the current situation in the U.S. that these are very powerful corporations and, and public figures, even now they are so well represented in, in, in the Trump government. These are people who... Um, who profit enormously from the consumption of fossil fuels and who will do all they can to defend and, uh, and prolong 
the fossil economy because their whole business model is to take up oil and coal and gas out of the ground and sell it on the market to get it burned. And uh, uh, if we now need to cease to, to terminate the production of fossil fuels, that would mean retiring an enormous amount of investment and prematurely liquidating all the capital that is sunk into those assets, such as oil terminals or uh, or uh, power plants, burning coal, uh, or coal mines. If we were to close all of these things, some people would lo- lose an enormous amount of money, namely the owners of these assets. And therefore, they are doing all they can to fight back against the demand for a transition uh, away from fossil fuels. That is how the real actual market works. You mentioned E. Ann Kaplan's study, Climate Trauma, Foreseeing the Future in Dystopian Film and Fiction. You write how Kaplan tells the story of how she herself was caught up in Hurricane Sandy, and at one point, as she tried to return to her apartment by climbing dark stairs, suffered a panic attack. The experience led her to develop the syndrome of pre-trauma, not the usual post-traumatic stress disorder in which people suffer past wounds, but rather fear of a future terrifying event of a similar kind. Our culture as a whole, Kaplan suggests, is now developing pre-trauma with more and more film, television, literature, journalism inflicted by the creeping uh, insight that catastrophic climate change is approaching. Consumers of popular culture make up a pre-traumatized population living with a sense of an uncertain future in an unreliable natural environment. How much do you see society acting as if it has pre-trauma when it comes to looming climate change? Are, are we not addressing climate change as much as we should be because of suffering from pre-traumatic stress disorder? I, I think that... Kaplan's point is that we should take pre-trauma seriously and perhaps suffer from it more than we do. But, but her point is that if you look at popular culture these days, it's uh, absolutely suffused with, with the theme of apocalypse, of uh, the, the, the end of days, of uh, earth in crisis. And particularly if you look at films uh, from the day after tomorrow to Interstellar to Elysium to... Yeah, it's an endless stream of films portraying the collapse of, uh, of the Earth as we know it. And this is, according to Kaplan, a kind of cultural processing of our predicament. Uh, most of us know at some level of our consciousness that we are in dire straits and we're facing the prospect of a breakdown in, uh, in the Earth's uh, basic functioning uh, notably the climate system, and this, uh, this uh, vague fear is expressed in, for instance, those films about, uh, about apocalypse, about uh, the end of the days and all of that. And um, I think that Kaplan's argument is that we should take those films seriously and, uh, and face up to our predicament and feel a little bit of panic because it's rational to do so when you're facing severe danger and act on that panic, not only fantasizing about it or imagining the outcomes, uh, what the world will look like when, uh, when the sea has risen uh, so and so many inches or when the, the deserts have expanded as, uh, as fiction and film are uh, quite skilled at doing. But we need to, to also act purposefully and politically 
on the insights that we have got from climate science about what we're facing. But this trauma is driven by actions that, as you were pointing out in your book and during this conversation, took place in the past that cannot be undone. So it would seem nothing can be done about this pre-trauma. How much do you think we are currently lashing out in other ways unrelated to climate change due to any pre-traumatic stress disorder we may be collectively suffering today? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are actually... Some researchers recently have argued that climate change is conducive to a general feeling of anxiety and worry and fear and uncertainty about uh, our ways of life, and that those feelings might in fact contribute to things like xenophobia, uh, using uh, immigrant communities as targets for those feelings. Complete, of course, these targets are completely unrelated to the actual source of those feelings. But human psyches are not always rational. And racism and fascism in particular have a, a known record for being able to channel emotions in very irrational and destructive ways. And uh, I'm not the one to, to prove this or to, to present any evidence for it, but perhaps the climate crisis shakes people's um, faith in their ways of life in a manner that push, pushes some of them to, towards um, blaming innocent victims for, for causing the downfall of, of, uh, of the present order. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a possibility that we need to be aware of, I think. That extreme weather can lead to extreme politics. Is that, do you think that's the case on both the left and the right, that extreme weather can lead to not just extreme right-wing politics, but potentially extreme left-wing politics as well? Well, yeah, I, don't, I, I think uh, I would never equate the two. I think uh, extreme politics from the left has a completely different uh, logic than than extreme politics from the right, which tends to target people on the basis of their ethnic identity. Extreme politics from the left, if any such exists these days, uh, tends to target um, the, the wealthiest, the upper class, for what they have done. So, uh, I mean, to be honest, I would hope for more extreme left politics due to extreme weather. I, I don't see very much of it, unfortunately, but uh, if you read military strategists from uh, Pentagon and, and other uh, institutions around the world, you will see them uh, being quite worried about how uh, catastrophic climate change in the decades ahead can induce riots, civil disturbances, um, a resurgence of radical left ideologies and things like that, because uh, people will be very seriously squeezed and might see some privileged few people uh, still uh, enjoying um, uh, their 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 plenty, their their fortunes, and that that I think uh, is a mixture that certainly can create the ground for social conflict. How much do you think any getting back to this pre-traumatic stress disorder? How how much do you think that that the pre pre-traumatic stress disorder leads to or creates a fertile environment for? climate change denialism. Are people freaking out about the potential for climate change to the point that they are denying climate change? 
Yeah, yeah. Certainly, think that's that's one of many mechanisms of repression that is operating. That it, this is just too scary a reality to acknowledge. So we better just imagine that it doesn't exist. That's also a well-known human psychological adaptation mechanism that you you just you can't face up to the threat, and it's more convenient and it, it gives you greater security just to reject the the existence of the threat. And that made me think about a recent conversation we had with uh, journalist uh, Johan Hari about the epidemic of unhappiness, the epidemic of depression. How much do you think climate change is making us unhappy, even causing an epidemic of unhappiness? Yeah, again, I think it's it's hard to pinpoint the exact causal link, but uh, certainly in, in this country, in Sweden, more and more psychologists have begun to, to speak about climate depression or people suffering from, from that syndrome almost in a clinical sense, that people are so worried and feel so powerless about global warming that they become depressed because they know how much is at stake. Um, I, I think quite a few people around the world feel seriously worried about this and it has an impact on their lives. Even more so, of course, if you're suffering actual material impact, such as a destroyed house or a, a lost uh, child or something like that, then it's, it's making you really depressed. And I, I believe, to, to, go, to return to Dominique, I believe people there are suffering from some really, really concrete climate depression because climate change has wrecked their lives and they're not happy about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, you write that permanent connectivity, that is to the Internet, for instance, enacts the final capitalist mirage of post-history. Jonathan Crary writes in his Searing 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep, it is the consum- consummation of a homogenous present, a space where the past has been erased and everything can be accessed on demand in an instant. Not only does it negate natural rhythms, such as the need for sleep, it also offers a cloister away from the new temp, the new time and weather. Then you quote uh, Crary writing, the more one identifies with the insubstantial electronic surrogates for the physical self, the more one seems to conjure an exemption from the bio side underway everywhere on the planet. And you add, the more one withdraws from the virtual cocoon, the more one detaches from things taking place in nature. To what extent then are we not addressing climate change in the present? Because we have Purposely, we have chosen to cut ourselves off from the outside world and nature. How much have we created a virtual world that works as some sort of buffer between us and nature, between us and climate change? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think uh, lots of people who who deny, explicitly deny climate change, uh, are at some subconscious level aware about the existence of climate change, but uh, uses the denial to use the denial to to pretend that the problem isn't there. And uh, that, that's also almost a general predicament in our societies. And it doesn't require explicit denial of climate science for, for that to happen. You know, in, in most countries, including my own in Sweden, people know about climate change and accept the science, but go on living as though nothing in particular was happening. Uh, and uh, living in denial is... If, a very common predicament right now, and it makes it, of course, very much more difficult to do anything uh, about climate change. Uh, what, what's needed is a mass, a mass movement, uh, a, a mass 
I mean, it would be pretentious to call it a mass awakening, but some call some some kind of um, of facing up to the realities and stop living in denial about what's going on. You write that uh, great blunder and trespasser climate change sweeps back and forth between the two regions traditionally referred to as nature and society. What do you mean by climate change moving back and forth between nature and society? It mixes elements of both. And um, that creates a, a particular theoretical or analytical problem. It makes it difficult to say ex- exactly where nature ends and society begins. So if you have a hurricane coming to you, it's a natural phenomenon, it would seem. But at the same time, we know that that hurricane, insofar as it's beefed up by climate change, is the result of social events uh, related to the combustion of fossil fuels. So climate change mixes the two in an uncertain dialectic or combination. Um, I still think that it's, it's very important to analytically distinguish between natural and social components of a thing such as climate change. We know, for instance, that warm oceans take up more space than cold ones. So when the temperature rises in the oceans, you have a thermal expansion of the seas. And this is completely natural in the sense that humans can't do anything about it. We can't decree that oceans stop expanding when they become hotter because that's a law of nature. On the other hand, we have uh, still uh, uh, a mind-boggling amount of subsidies going to fossil fuel companies around this world. And that's a completely social component of the problem. Because humans can, in fact, governments can very easily terminate such such subsidies. So uh, climate change is a mixture of nature and society. But we need to analytically tell the social and the natural components apart because um, what we can do is to change the social part of the picture. What we can't do is to change the natural consequences of what we do. So we know that, that the seas will continue to rise if, uh, if uh, glaciers melt and things like that. It's a fact of nature. And precisely for that reason, we need to um, to alter our social ways of doing things when it comes to energy. So we've been talking about how we've cut ourselves off from nature. We've been talking about how we have even cut ourselves off from this kind of sense of time. You write, history has sprung alive through a nature that has done likewise. We are only in the very early stages, but already our daily life, our psychic experience, our cultural responses, even our political show signs of being sucked back by planetary forces into the whole of time. The present dissolving into past and future alike. Postmodernity seems to be visited by its antithesis, a condition of time and nature conquering ever more space. Call it the warming condition. How will nature and time be different, even reassert themselves during the warming condition? And how well do you think we will be able to adapt to the warming condition? The worst, the worst case scenario is that the warming condition just accelerates and we get this two, three, four, five, six degrees uh, of uh, warming. And uh, in that case, uh, the, 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 um, the, part, the, the various parts of the Earth's system will start to break down and the natural consequences that will play out will be of, of, 
such magnitude that we cannot meaningfully adapt to them. Um, and then we really are caught up in the in a past that we can't do anything about if that happens. Now, I don't believe that we that that is the, a destiny that it's predetermined and inevitable. There is still significant space for action. We can uh, cut fossil fuel consumption and we can cut CO2 emissions to near zero over the next few decades, preferably until the middle of the century. And we can perhaps also move towards negative emissions when you actually start to um, undo some of the damages from the past by taking carbon dioxide down out from the atmosphere and reinsert them into the underground. Uh, that might require some advanced technologies that are very uncertain, but uh, it's it's that kind of a, a, a war against the past, to speak metaphorically, that might be required to stabilize climate on the, this earth. And that's a task that we'll, uh, we'll have to work on for a long time, for decades, perhaps even centuries, before we uh, return to a stable climate. But it's, it's hard to see how we can do anything less than strive for a stabilization of the climate, because we know that a complete destabilization of the climate is not compatible with continued organized human life on this planet. And you point out in your book how, you know, zero emissions is a far easier technology to have and an innovation to, uh, it's, an, it's something that we actually can have right now, zero emissions, but negative emissions is something that is so technologically beyond us right now. It's going to be a lot more difficult if we continue to uh, cause climate change. You write, any theory for the warming condition should have the struggle to stabilize climate with the demolition of the fossil econo- economy, the nat- necessary first step. As, fit, as its practical, if only ideal, point of reference. It should clear up space for action and resistance. If anything, destroying the fossil fuel economy, uh, economy is viewed as impractical. That is, there has not, there's got to be a way to both address climate change and not have an impact on our economy. So why do you see ending the fossil economy as practical in the face of climate change? Practical in the sense that we have the known, uh, proven, existing technologies required to get away from fossil fuels. We have renewable energy, and uh, it works better by the day. It's becoming cheaper by the day. Uh, It's it's technically feasible to shift away completely from fossil fuels. And this has been demonstrated again and again that the world economy can be powered solely by wind um, and sun and some addition of uh, thermal and, uh, and water power, although no one really believes in massive expansion of water power any longer. But the other forms of renewable energy are capable of a massive expansion that could replace fossil fuels. And uh, that can be done without any serious harm to the, the Earth system, unlike geoengineering in its more uh, radical forms, uh, such as solar radiation management, where you try to reduce the amount of incoming sunlight into the planet to cool it down. These uh, technologies come with uh, with uh, threats of uh, of very problematic uh, consequences, and therefore shouldn't be deemed realistic. Unfortunately, nowadays many politicians more or less count on such technologies as saving us in the future because uh, 
they they aren't uh, courageous enough or they, they don't feel that they have a mandate or they're not being pushed to actually intervene in the capitalist economy and force it on another track. That's the ultimate taboo in these times and therefore uh, politicians prefer to hope that some kind of future technology will save us when it's unproven and potentially very dangerous. How much has the commodification of nature created climate change? Because you write, more specifically, the theoretical obliteration of nature mimics the practical attempts by capital to subsume it under the law of value. Indeed, as many anti-constructionists have argued, it is the latter that makes the former even plausible. Only in a society that strives to turn every bit of nature into profit can the idea that nature has no independent existence take root. So can climate change be addressed without considering and re-examining, uh, re-examining the idea of commodification of nature? Well, I, I, maybe at the end of the process, it will have to include a break with the idea of nature as a commodity that we can control and optimize for our use. Uh, And we need a a much more humble attitude, so to speak, uh, to the rest of nature and to desist from from extreme domination of nature. Fossil fuels are really all about dominating nature, about using a type of energy that seems to fit our purposes, that we can control in time and space. Uh, A shift to renewable energy, as Naomi Klein and others have pointed out, would require more of humility, more of adaptation to natural forces and learning to live with with nature as it is, not as as we, or rather as as capital, uh, wants it to be. Um, So I think uh, at the end of... uh, of a transition away from fossil fuels, we will come out with a different relationship to nature. Yeah. And you also point out that uh, you discuss the impact of materialism on climate change, and you write how political theorist Jane Bennett justifies the material non-human turn with the voluminous mountain of things that today surround those of us living in corporate capitalist neoliberal shopping as religion cultures. These mountains demand that we give the alluring objects themselves, the commodities, pride of place in our thinking. The wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an immense collection of thing kings. To what extent will our sense of materialism have to change in order to save us or future generations from climate change? Quoted now from, from my book is part of an argument against so-called new materialism, which uh, claims that things have agency on their own. So things like uh, clouds or fatty acids or power plants or yeah, goods that you shop in the, the local store, they have agency and uh, their own will almost that they impose on us. And I don't think that that is... Uh, a useful materialist analysis of uh, of our times. I think we need to retain a distinction between humans as being rather special in their agency, in their uh, in their capacity to choose, for instance, between various types of energy. Um, no other species has that kind of ability to to consume all sorts of energy and pick between them as we do. So um, we, have, uh, we are material beings and we're completely inter- interwoven with other material beings, but we have a particular 
um, role, uh, mostly a destructive one right now, on this planet, uh, and uh, that role derives from some exceptional human characteristics that are related to the, the type of agency, uh, the kind of intentions that we can have. Um, and I don't see new materialism, which is very popular in some academic circles, as an analytically uh, tenable way forward in this situation. I think we need to uh, assume the, the very special responsibility that comes with what some like to call the Anthropocene, the, the epoch of humankind, when, when human actions determine the trajectory of this planet. You write, in Climate Crisis, Psychoanalysis, and Radical Ethics, Donna M. Orange chases the ghosts of colonial history that haunt this global warming world and suggests that an unprocessed history of enslaving others primes privileged white people to callousness. And you quote Orange writing, blindness to our ancestors' crimes and to the way we whites continue to live from those crimes keeps the suffering of those already exposed to the devastation of climate crisis impossible for us to see or feel. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking with award-winning journalist Vegas Tenold about uh, his five-year investigation into the far right here into white supremacists and white nationalists here in the United States. How much is climate change the result of white supremacy? How much does that keep whites denying climate change because they cannot admit that the cost of their privilege has been the environment, if not the planet? is a crucial link, I think. Uh, the, the fossil economy as it evolved in the 19th century rested on white supremacy in the sense that it was the invention by, uh, of, of Englishmen and other Western Europeans who, uh, with force, imposed this invention on others, brought coal and steam and uh, related to technologies to Egypt and Nigeria and China against the will, largely, of the peoples of those countries and used those technologies to enrich themselves and were quite explicit about it. Uh, if you read all the British uh, literature on steam power, for instance, you will find many references to, to the power that steam gives us to, um, to destroy the rabble of the world and to take um, all that we need from the, Af the interior of the African continent or the Indian subcontinent. So there is a, a very clear historical link between uh, racial capitalism, if you like, and, uh, the, and the use of fossil fuels on a large scale. Uh, that's, that's one part of the picture. Another part of the picture is the, the fact that most people that today suffer serious losses due to climate change are people of color around the world. And white people that who are fairly affluent in Europe and the United States are shielded largely from the consequences of climate change. So there is a color gradation to the problem. And uh, um, I think that um, the surge in the support for the far right is, is related to this and will be more related to this in the future because we can easily see scenarios where lots of people of color move towards let's say Europe, for instance, because their homelands have been rendered uh, more or less uninhabitable by climate change. And then you will have white populations in Europe who are deeply influenced by xenophobia, not the least Islamophobia, and what will happen the day when, when, uh, when you see movements of people on a completely different magnitude than what we saw in 2015 when people in Europe freaked out about a so-called refugee crisis 
And since then, we've seen a, a, yet another surge in the support for, for the far right. Uh, will, will, will white, relatively privileged people in Europe open up their countries to climate refugees? Or will they uh, try to defend their borders and keep people out to, to enjoy their privileges? I think that's a, a question we will have to uh, deal with, with in, the, in the relatively near future. And you write that the warming condition spells the death of affirmative politics. Negativity is our only chance now. Why does climate change end affirmative politics, and what does negativity offer that affirmation does not? Well, in very concrete terms, we need to destroy things. We need to, to stop things. We need to um, not affirm things like coal-fired power plants or accelerate um, uh, automobility, we need to terminate those things. That's the element of negativity. There, there is no way that we can get out of the warming condition or, or out of prevent uh, climate breakdown without negatively uh, uh, destroying and terminating things that are dangerous. You write that some on the left maintain that progressives should not stoke panic. They ought to be less catastrophic or uh, catastrophist and apocalyptic. But if we accept the principles of climate realism and stay up to date with the science, the boot is entirely on the other foot. Psychoanalyst and philosopher, as we were just quoting a little bit ago, Donna Orange, points to the classic psychoanalytical embarrassment of Sigmund Freud himself, who refused to see Nazi annexation coming and only escaped Vienna at the very last moment, leaving several family members to perish. Then you quote, Orange writing, the parallel with our climate emergency is clear. When we cannot panic appropriately, we cannot take fittingly radical action. How much does radical action then, the radical action we need, depend upon panic and fear? Uh, To be honest, I don't think panic and fear are really the most productive emotions here. I think climate anger should be the the prime emotion of our days. We need more anger. It's, It's the fairly well-known in psychology that the, the emotion most conducive to action isn't fear or panic, but it is anger. And there are many reasons to be angry. Uh, there are reasons to be angry with uh, the fact that oil corporations continue to profit enormously, horrendously from delivering more fuels to the fire. There is reason to be angry about how much power oil corporations have in this world, notably in the U.S. There is reason to be angry about Swedish politicians uh, expanding airports and building new highways when we need to do exactly the opposite. And I think that is the, 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 the emotional force with the greatest potential to change things. And if such anger is also combined with panic, then sure. But I think we, what, what we need most is indignation at this time. We have been speaking with Andreas Malma, author of The Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World. And you can actually win Andreas's book by having the best response to this week's question from hell. And we'll be telling you what that is in just a moment. Andreas was on our show back in December 2015 to discuss his book, Fossil Capital. And if you have not read that book or checked it out yet, you should definitely check it out. It won the uh, Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize, which is awarded annually to a book which exemplifies the best and most innovative new writing in or about the Marxist tradition. One last question for you, Andreas. And as always, our final question is the question from hell. Question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. What 
climate change uh, deniers have been saying all along that all capitalism is is a fable, maybe even created by the Chinese, made up to overthrow capitalism. Can we end climate change? Can we effectively address climate change and still be capitalist? To be honest, I hope so, because it's very difficult to abolish capitalism. It has proven exceedingly hard over the past two centuries. So I hope, given what little time we have, that it's possible to address climate change without getting rid of capitalism altogether. But I do think that um, any serious mitigation uh, policy will inevitably conflict and clash with capitalist interests. Whether that clash leads to a complete abolition of capitalism, I I will leave unsaid. Perhaps it's not necessary. But some capital will definitely have to be taken down, most obviously the kind of fossil capital that profits immediately from the combustion of fossil fuels. So any sensible climate politics contains anti-capitalist elements, and that's why it's so hard to progress on this issue. Andreas, a pleasure again to have you back here on This Is Hell, and we'll stay in touch with you because we definitely want to have you back on the show again. Always enjoyable to have a conversation with you, sir. Likewise. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. This Is Hell, a special best of episode. And what you just heard was Andreas Malm, an interview from February. Now we're going to have Virginia Eubanks on to talk about how technology uh, was never really meant to be helpful. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, This is from May of this year. Hope you like it. Big Brother's 21st century surveillance incarnation, Big Data, is applying algorithms to the poor, creating a digital poorhouse that is worse than any poorhouse that preceded it. Here to tell us how and why we have automated inequality, writer, teacher, and welfare rights organizer Virginia Eubanks is author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Welcome to This Is Hell, Virginia. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Learn more about Virginia at virginia-ubanks.com. You can follow her on Twitter at PopTechWorks. And as I was saying earlier, friend of the show has been on our show, I don't know, like a dozen times. Uh, Liza Featherstone wrote a glowing review of your book, so congratulations for that. It was in the New York Times Book Review, and if people want to check it out, that happened just uh, either last weekend or the weekend before. So, uh, Virginia, let's start here. Is the digitization of services driven by a desire by governments and corporations to take the human aspect out of providing that service in order to be more neutral in their assessments. Is this a way to make it so it seems like there is no race or class profiling, even though there might be within those algorithms race and class profiling? Yeah, so that's sort of the one of the million-dollar questions of the book. I really appreciate you raising it right away. Um, so a lot of times when people talk about the kinds of systems I discuss in the book or I describe in the book, um, administrators, social workers, and the designers of the tools will talk about them as ways to eliminate bias from um, public casework, particularly from frontline casework. So the folks who decide whether or not you're eligible for public assistance, the, the people who place 
unhoused folks on the path to resources and, and some, some other folks don't get resources, right? So often we talk about these systems um, as if uh, the primary function is to remove human discretion um, uh, from the system. Um, but in, I talk about three cases in the book. I talk about an attempt to automate all of the eligibility processes uh, for the welfare systems in the state of Indiana in 2006. I talk about an electronic registry of the unhoused in Los Angeles called the Coordinated Entry System. And I talk about a system in Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is, that is um, called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. And it's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future um, there in Allegheny County. Um, and each one of the, each set of those designers talked about these systems as um, uh First, being about using resources most efficiently and most effectively, and second, about being about removing bias from frontline decision making. But one of the things that you find um, that's sort of really interesting in these cases, I'll give you an example of the the case in Indiana, the attempt to automate all of the eligibility processes there, um, is while... um, these tools might remove some of the human bias from the the front line where people make decisions about who gets resources. They kind of build, a, they often build a deeper bias into the system itself in a way that is both more invisible because it's technological and um, faster and it scales, um, scales faster and works more quickly. So in Indiana, uh, one of the... It, I won't say the intentions. I don't know what was in the soul of Governor Mitch Daniels of of Indiana when he was organizing um, this new tool. Um, But certainly one of the impacts of the the system, one of the assumptions that was built into it was that the relationship between caseworkers and and folks who were applying for help from the, uh, the state's Medicaid food stamps, and cash assistance programs, that relationship was primarily an invitation to fraud and collusion. So when the governor of the state was talking about this plan in um, the mid-2000s, he spoke at length about this particular case where um, some caseworkers and a local church had sort of collaborated to defraud the state of some money by creating dummy accounts. Uh, and applying for benefits under those dummy accounts. So when he went out to talk about why to automate the process, the reason he said is, look, caseworkers and community members are collaborating to defraud um, other taxpayers of the state. So part of the design of the system was um, it was severing the relationship between caseworkers and and folks who needed help, um, which meant that... um, when uh, folks called in, rather than talking to their local caseworker who lived in their county, who knew the resources and might know their family, they spoke to a um, a private employee of a call center and a regional call center that was often hundreds of miles away from their homes. And every time they called, they spoke to someone new, um, which meant no one was really accountable or responsible for a case from beginning to end. And from the caseworker's point of view, rather than being responsible to a docket of families or serving a group 
group of families, they were responding to a list of tasks that dropped into their uh, workflow management system, which is just this technological system that they then use to distribute tasks among among private employees in these call center worker in these call centers, and the the result of that was a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment, um, and most of those denials were for this sort of catch-all reason that was called failure to. Uh, cooperate with establishing eligibility, which basically just meant that someone somewhere in the process had made a mistake, whether that was the applicant or a caseworker or the state or the computer system itself. Um, but it gave you no information about what that mistake might be. So it just said you failed to cooperate, so you're denied services, and gave um, uh, applicants 10 to 13 days to figure out what the problem was and solve it, or they were kicked off public assistance. And this um, resulted in incredible suffering for hundreds of thousands of people in Indiana, including folks like Omega Young, who I um, I talk about in the book, uh, who is a, from Evansville, and she um, missed a phone call, um, an interview to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. Um, and even though she reached out to the call center to say, hey, I can't make this call because I'm in the hospital right now, um, they cut her off for failure to cooperate. Um, and she died about a year um, later. Um, and uh, one day after her death, uh, she actually won a, a um, uh, a case for um, being falsely denied benefits, um, and all of her benefits were restored the day after she died. So if automation seems to lead to fraud and poorer services, is the motivation of automating inequality, as you call it, is the, is the, the purpose of automating these kind of public services to cut costs? Is, is, is cost cutting being prioritized over fighting fraud, over getting services to the people who need it? Yeah, so I, there's two different things there. One is cutting costs and one is fraud. Let's talk about the costs first. Um, so often this is one of the reasons that um, uh, administrators and designers give for developing these systems. So they talk about them um, largely in the language of triage, right, that we have um, uh, limited resources. We don't have enough resources. We have a ton of need. So we have to make really, really difficult decisions between who gets access to resources and who doesn't. Um, and so it's less, although sometimes there's, a, there's an argument uh, directly about cost-cutting, mostly the argument I've, I heard in researching the book was um, that because we don't have enough resources, we have to make difficult decisions about who gets them, and that computers are good at um, organizing lots of information and making objective decisions about who should get access to resources and who shouldn't. Um, one of the things I find really troubling about that argument is that the idea um, that triage is appropriate um, in a case where we've actually created these natural disasters, right? We've created these disasters in our public service program because our public service program is incredibly stingy and doesn't actually give people access to enough resources so that they can become um, healthy and self-sufficient. 
um, you know, we created the system of, um, uh, uh, we, we created the problem of homelessness for ourselves um, through a combination of not um, uh, providing enough low-income housing, um, not having social services be generous enough to meet need, um, and having um, jobs that, where the wages are so low. Um, and talking about the results of these political choices um, uh, to be to, to basically have a politics of austerity as if they are natural disasters that have to be responded to with triage, right? That is actually already a political choice, right? In many other places in the world, the kinds of things I talk about in the book, um, whether that's um, you know starving in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, whether that is the 58,000 people who are unhoused in Los Angeles County alone, um, or whether that's a family getting broken up um, because a parent can't afford a child's medication. Right? In other places in the world, these things would be considered um, human rights violations. Um, and here in the United States, we often are, are increasingly talking about them as if they're systems engineering issues. Um, and that's, uh, that should really give us some deep pause about the, the state of our national soul. So uh, one of the, the great, brilliant folks I spoke to in the book, Gary Blasey, who's a homeless advocate and an attorney in Los Angeles County, um, talking about the coordinated entry system there, um, said to me, you know, homeless is not a systems engineering problem. Um, it's a carpentry problem. Right? And so one of my great fears about these systems is that they act as um, empathy overrides, that they uh, provide us the space we need to deny and to ignore some of our most sort of pressing social justice questions in this country. Um, and uh, and I, I believe the sort of um, vast explosion of these tools and the uh, increased sort of politics of austerity that we see in our country right now have really sort of grown up together and rely on each other. Does it give us a false sense then that we are addressing the problems of the poor, that the, we've handed off the issue to the computers and now the computers are doing the job? And so does it alleviate uh, any responsibility that we have? Does it even assuage uh, liberal guilt for those who are liberals about what is happening as far as trying to eradicate, eradicate uh, poverty or at least address it? Well, I'll say that these tools are popular across the aisle, right? Like, this is certainly not a, uh, automating inequality is certainly not a book that, uh, that targets conservatives or targets Republicans because, um, solely or only, um, because, uh, I think, you know, we can see at least since the 90s that, um, targeting poor and working people is, um, just as popular with Democrats and unfortunately many progressives as it is, um, uh, with conservatives. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I use this metaphor of the digital poorhouse in the book, so I go back in the history quite far. I, um, I did not intend to go back so far, and my history chapter in the book was originally something like 90 pages long, so we're all very grateful to my editor for <laughs> getting it down to a felt, I think it was 27 pages, and stopping me at 1820. Um, and the reason that I start the book in 1820 when I'm talking about these high-tech tools is because that's the moment where we as a nation um, decided that our public service programs um, should act more like moral thermometers, deciding who is deserving enough 
for, um, for their share of our public resources, um, rather than building a universal floor under everyone. Um, and that I think of as the sort of deep social programming that these tools now run on and in many cases amplify. So in 1819, there was a huge, huge economic depression in the country. There was a lot of organizing by poor and, white, uh, poor and working folks um, for their rights and their survival. And economic elites became really, really uncomfortable. And so they had this conversation that was like, well, what's the real problem? Problem. Is the real problem poverty, which is like lack of resources, or is the real problem what they at the time called pauperism? And pauperism means um, uh, reliance on public benefits. And you can probably guess what they decided, you know, in 1819. They decided, well, the real problem is that folks are reaching out to, to um, uh, community resources for support. The real problem is dependence on public benefits, not poverty. And so what they decided at the time was to create this new technology, which was called the County Poorhouse. And the County Poorhouse was a brick-and-mortar institution for incarcerating poor and working people. Um, and the intention of the poorhouse was to make accessing public resources so difficult, so stigmatized, and so dangerous that um, no one who was not absolutely desperate would reach out for any kind of support. Um, and they did that by requiring... Right, if you were going to enter the poorhouse, if you had at the time the right to vote or to run for office, you had to give up your right to vote and run for office um, and to marry. Um, if you had children, your children were separated from you because at the time it was believed that poor children could be sort of recuperated by um, having contact with uh, with richer families. Often that contact was um, uh, unpaid labor, right, was, was uh, domestic or agricultural labor. Um, and death rates at these institutions was something like 30% annually um, at some of them. The, a, most, a very famous um, poorhouse in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, took um, what they called foundlings or orphans. Um, and the, every foundling they um, accepted for 30 years died, right? These are just horrible, horrible, terrifying institutions. Um, and they were, but they were institutions for moral diagnosis, right? It was like, you should have to suffer if you are asking for help from public, if you're asking for your share of public resources. And I believe that we see that very deep programming in the tools that the, the digital tools that we're seeing today. So, I mean, there's nothing intrinsic about, you know, having ones and zeros instead of a, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a vellum um, ledger, right? There's nothing that's, that's specific about digital technology that produces these outcomes. Um, we could certainly use similar tools to say, hey, like we have a huge resource distribution uh, problem in our country, and what we need to do is lower all the barriers to folks getting the things they need so we can unle unleash their human capacity, right? We've chosen not to do that. We've chosen, as, as you said at the top of this question, we've chosen to create sort of an anti-fraud arms race where we try to get fraud down to almost zero in programs that have already really low fraud, right? So the um, the SNAP program, or what used to be called the food stamps program, fraud rate is well below 5%, um, and which is sort of acceptable for any large business organization, but certainly is not seen as acceptable for food stamps. So trying to get fraud down to zero means that you produce more and more complicated systems that reach deeper and deeper into the lives of people who are asking for support. 
um, and because they're investigating people as if they're criminals, um, they, they turn stuff up, right? Because none of us lives a perfect life. Um, and then when you turn something up, it allows you to divert people from the assistance that they're actually um, entitled to. So that's sort of, I think of that as like the anti-fraud arms race, right? Like we get more and more sophisticated equipment um, to investigate li- um, poor and working people's lives more and more intimately. Um, and that creates these uh, processes where you can um, deny and divert people from resources they're actually eligible for and, and deserve. Um, and the last thing I'll say about um, efficiency and cost savings is um, we assume that these computers will um, create business processes that are um, faster and cheaper. Um, but in fact, like in Indiana, what we find is that when they fail, um, they often fail catastrophically and cost us an immense amount of money. So the system I talked about in Indiana um, actually went so badly that three years into a 10-year contract, the governor canceled the contract with uh, a consortium of high-tech companies, in this case, IBM. Um, and IBM actually sued the state for breach of contract. And in the first round of legal battles around it won. So not only were they allowed to keep the half billion dollars they had already collected on the system, um, but they were awarded an extra $50 million in penalties because the state breached the contract because the system was denying so many people um, public assistance that people were dying. So why is the digital poorhouse worse than the poorhouse of the past? Isn't the digital poorhouse at least, at least not as cruel as the poorhouse of the past? Yeah, so that's a, that's a fantastic question. I, um, I have incredible fears about the digital poorhouse, right? I, I don't want to underplay, like, the atrocities of the actual brick-and-mortar poorhouse, right? Like, so we were supposed to build one of these in every county in the United States. We didn't quite get that far, but we had more than 1,000 of them. And if you um, – Basically, anywhere you live, you can find evidence of the poorhouse that used to be there. So if there's a road in your town called Poorhouse Road or Poor Farm Road or State Farm Road, that's where the poorhouse was um, in, in, your, in your county. Um, in my own city, I live in Troy, New York, which is a town uh, upstate, about three hours north of, of Manhattan. Um, there is an old burial ground um, that used to be the burying yard of the poorhouse that where there's just thousands of bodies and unmarked graves, um, and there's you know not acknowledged in any way. So these things were everywhere. They're a deep part of our history. It's super fascinating how we both know they existed and don't talk about them at all. Um, it's a, just this very open secret in the United States. So I don't want to underplay the horrors of the poorhouse, but there are some of the, the brick and mortar poorhouse. But there are some things that are different about the digital poorhouse that I find really concerning. Um, one is that um, the, the digital nature of the processes um, means that they scale up very fast. The tools of the digital poorhouse scale up very fast. So one of the reasons we didn't get to a brick-and-mortar poorhouse in every county is that it's just expensive and time-consuming to actually build physical institutions for incarcerating the poor. Um, the, the barriers to rapid scaling... Uh, in the digital poorhouse are much lower. So the coordinated entry system I talk about in Los Angeles was, um, you know, a, a single pilot in a single county in um, uh, 2013, I believe, um, and it has become 
basically the de facto um, operating system of almost all homeless services in the United States, you know, just five years later. Um, so that these, these tools scale up really fast. The second thing that's different about the digital poorhouse from the, the brick-and-mortar poorhouse is that the record that it creates, the digital record it creates, um, kind of you can think of it as a, uh, a data trail, which is one way that uh, the Our Data Bodies project has, has referred to, um, to these records. Uh, it's potentially eternal, right? So although, you know, those of us who have been around long enough to, like, have data on a zip disk somewhere in a drawer in our house, like, we know that digital records being eternal is a little more complicated than that, but there is at least the possibility that this record lasts forever. And it doesn't just impact you as an individual, it also impacts your neighbors and your family. So if you look at the Allegheny Family Screening Tool in um, near Pittsburgh, um, this tool doesn't just risk rate the individual who um, there's been a call of po possible neglect or abuse on them. It actually rates um, every person in the household, so every child, um, every parent, but also um, the parents' sort of ex-paramours or the cousin who, like, lived upstairs in your house for, uh, you know, a couple of months. Um, so anyone who's been through the uh, been through the household is part of the risk rating and then is pulled into the system by it their by their networks. Um, so these systems aren't just focused on individuals or or um, they they focus on networks of people throughout communities. So I really think the harm um, is potentially m will go more viral more quickly. Um, and then the third thing that I think that is really different between the county poorhouse and the digital poorhouse is one of the reasons the county poorhouse stopped being popular among economic elites is something really unexpected happened, which is if you get hundreds of poor and working people together in, um, in one building and you make them all like live in dormitory, like dormitories and eat at common tables and work together and care for each other's children and care for each other while they die, right? They actually develop, like, in many cases, a lot of solidarity. And so poorhouses actually became a site in some interesting ways of a lot of resistance. And I think one of the things that's different about the digital poorhouse is um, that these uh, electronic tools, these digital tools, tend to um, feel very isolating. It feels like you're the only person this is happening to, like the world doesn't make sense. I know you just had David Graeber on, and he talks a lot about bureaucracy, and I think the, the bureaucracy is isolating in, this, in the same way, that you feel like you're the only person who's making sense and nothing else makes sense. Um, and I can just share my own experience. One of the things that happened just as I was um, starting to write the book is that my partner was attacked and beaten really vi violently, and one of the things that was incredibly difficult about that for us was, um, though we had luckily, thankfully, had private insurance, um, uh, right after he had surgery to, um, uh, to basically rebuild his, his, his face and his skull, um, our insurance was mysteriously suspended. Um, and they told me at the time that it had been suspended because someone had maybe accidentally erased a digit in a in the database that said that we no longer had a start date. But because I do this work, I really suspected, and I still believe that what had happened is that um, it was a brand new policy, um, and we put you know sixty thousand dollars worth of bills in the first couple of weeks of the policy, and they had suspended our insurance 
to investigate us for fraud. So they had red flagged us for fraud. And that experience for me, as I was helping to care for my partner who was in extraordinary pain and also sort of battling the insurance company was incredibly isolating. It, um, it really felt like being kicked when we were our most vulnerable. And so I also really fear that the, the, these digital processes are so dehumanizing um, that they become isolating in a way that makes it difficult to organize and resist. You write that in early 2000, you were sitting talking to a young woman on welfare about her experiences with technology when our conversation turned to EBT, electronic benefits transfer cards, which are the replacement for food stabs here in uh, Chicago. They're called link cards. Dorothy Allen said, they're great, except social services uses them as a tracking device. You then add that you, quote, must have looked shocked because Dorothy explained that her caseworker routinely looked at her purchase records. How much do we dismiss the perspective of the poor because it is not a perspective that we share? Because I could see being shocked at that as well and even going farther to think that Dorothy was paranoid. After all, who would want to track the poor? So how much do we dismiss not only perspectives but opinions of the poor because we do not have a shared experience? Well, let's talk quickly about who the poor are because that's actually really important. So I use the phrase poor and working class really intentionally in the book. And part of, um, part of that is an effort to help us recognize that we have a very particular narrative about poverty in this country. And the narrative is that it is, uh, poverty is an aberration in a country of plenty. Um, it happens to a small percentage of probably pathological people. Like there's probably something wrong with folks who end up poor and it doesn't happen to many people. And that, like, what we need to establish is that's just not true. It's just a lie. Um, the, the really great work by Mark Rank to do life cycle um, studies of poverty in the United States shows really clearly that 51% of us um, will be below the poverty line at some point in our adult life. So some point between the ages of 20 and 64, um, f- more than 50% of us will be below the poverty line at some point in that time. And a full two-thirds of us will access means-tested public assistance. So that's just straight welfare. That's not like reduced-cost school lunches or Social Security. That's straight welfare. So I want to be really clear and say that when we talk about um, why don't we uh, pay attention to the poor, we're actually saying why don't we pay attention to our own experiences or many of us to our own experiences. Um, And I want to be really clear, though. It's not to say that we all experience poverty equally or that we're all equally vulnerable to poverty, simply not true, right? If you were born poor, if you're a person of color, if you're uh, a migrant without legal status, um, if you're caring for other people, if you have a physical disability, or if you struggle with mental health um, issues, you're much more likely to be poor. And uh, it's much harder to escape poverty once you're there. Um, But I think it's really important to be clear and say that poverty is the majority American condition, um, and we need to to talk about it um, in that way. Um, What Dorothy, amazing, brilliant Dorothy, said to me in 2000, so this is 18 years ago, um, and bless her, right, she said, you should pay attention to us, um, and she meant those of us on public assistance, um, because... Uh, they're coming for you next, or they're coming from, for everyone next, right? I think was incredibly prescient and incredibly true. And it's really, I think of it as the origin point of this book is that lesson that Dorothy um, taught me. So there's that sort of old saw of a quote by William Gibson 
um, right? The future is already here. It's not evenly distributed, um, which I love, but I think I use it the opposite way that he intended it. I think he intends it to mean, right, like fancy, sexy new technologies come out and rich people get them first. My experience as a welfare rights organizer and someone who thinks a lot about technology and poverty for the last 25 years is that um, the most intrusive, most invasive, most sophisticated new technologies come out in communities where there are low expectations that people's rights will be respected first. So I think of them as sort of low rights environments, right? So that um, is in poor and working class communities, that's in communities of color um, that are often over-surveyed, um, that's communities of undocum- undocumented migrants and, and many other folks. Um, and so I think one of the reasons to pay attention to the voices of poor and working people around their experiences with technology um, is because they're already living in the future um, and we need, to, we need to pay attention to what their experiences are broadly, both for what it tells us about where technology is going, but also for where it t- what it tells us about sort of the state of our national soul. Because I really think that these technologies, because they are um, so fast, because they, are, they spread so quickly, um, and because they are built on this deep social programming of uh, our political assumptions as a country really can be remarkable indicators for where a deep inequality is, where one of these tools just goes wildly off the rails. You know that there is a deep inequality that we're just not dealing with in uh, as direct a way as we need to be, um, because, I, because I believe we're then using those tools as, as empathy overrides. We're using those tools to not face the hard questions. We, so I think that's why we need to listen to folks like Dorothy um, is because they have the most information about the shape of these um, tech, technologies and the, the shape of our future. We've mentioned on our show time and time again the idea that whatever the U.S. military does overseas during wartime eventually comes home and is done often by police against U.S. citizens. Back in uh, 2009, we talked to historian Alfred McCoy, and he told us back then that the use of drones in the war on terror was going to be applied back in the U.S., and it has. This year, we talked to sociologist Nisha Kapoor about how laws governing terrorists are now being applied to all immigrants and being applied to all citizens. And we spoke with Black Youth Project 100 National uh, Public Policy Chair Janae Bonsu about how war on terror technology is now used in uh, neighborhoods to, of people of color in Chicago. Janae even discussed how war on terror, is, terror uh, surveillance technology was being put into their communities. Here you're writing that whatever is done to the poor is eventually done to everyone. So war zones and the impoverished areas are laboratories for social experiments that, if deemed successful, will be turned on everyone else. Do we lack sympathy and empathy for others, whether it's people who are dying in war zones that the United States is involved in, or whether it's in poor communities within the United States. Do we lack sympathy and empathy for others at our own risk? Mm. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a deep question. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate you raising um, the international aspects of the, the process that I'm talking about. So when I talk about low-rights communities, certainly that also includes war zones around the world, right? Those, those are definitely labs for, experimenta- for experimentation and social control. Um, I believe um, that we have such a deep-seated 
hatred of the poor and fear of poverty in this country, um, that we lack empathy not only for folks who are currently in the economic borderlands, right, who are currently suffering from precarity, but we also lack empathy for ourselves. And we, we don't, I, um, we, once, if we recover, once we recover, we move so quickly away from that part of our lives that we don't even learn the lessons from our own experience. And I can tell a quick story that will make that more concrete. So I've been, a, um, until just about three years ago, I was a, a welfare rights organizer with an organization I helped found called Our Knowledge, Our Power in the capital region of, of New York State. And um, part of our work was to help people identify with the label of poor as a political identity. And we did that by trying to redefine poverty um, following the, the model of the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, a national or, um, coalition of poor and working folks organizations. Um, and their definition of poverty is if you lack even one of your economic human rights, that you have a meaningful claim to the identity of poor. So that's if you lack um, decent um, health care, if you lack quality affordable education, if you lack a safe job with a fair wage, um, if you lack food, water, housing, or other basic needs, um, that you can count yourself among the poor. So part of our work in Our Knowledge, Our Power was to help people see themselves within poor as a political category and also to help them see them their, their own um, application for acceptance of public benefits as a political act, right? As saying, right, this is the way we care for each other as a nation um, when we have bad luck. Um, and so this is actually a way of, pol uh, of participating politically, um, applying for and receiving public benefits. So it was really important to us to help people identify positively both around um, um, poverty and around public benefits um, receipt. But for the whole 15 years that I was organizing as a welfare rights organizer, I identified as someone um, who cared deeply about issues of economic inequality, who believed in um, the, the potential of public assistance systems, but who had never received public uh, assistance herself. And so I went to a conference a couple of months ago, and we were talking about um, Universal Lifeline, which is a program that uh, subsidizes access to communication. So in the 90s, it was uh, access to actual landline phones. Now it's what most people call Obama phones, right, which is a reduced-cost cell phones for, for folks who fall under a certain income line. Um, and so we were talking about Universal Lifeline, and I, you know, I, was, I was like, oh, yeah, I was on Lifeline for years. <laughs> And, like, this light bulb went on over my head where I was like, oh, man, like, I've been saying for years that I was never on public assistance. I was never on welfare. But, of course, I was receiving welfare. I was on Universal Lifeline. And then I was like, oh, right, we also applied for food stamps five years ago, right? So there's this way that we, um, the folk, those of us who are precarious but not um, chronically poor, um, even write those experiences out of, out of our own story. And I think it's really hard to empathize for yourself or for other similar, similarly situated people if you can't tell the truth of your own story. And so a big part of my work is speaking to people and, and, and inviting them to share honestly their own experiences, both with economic precarity um, and the suffering that comes with that, um, and the strength of poor and working class communities and their experiences with these technologies. So I think one of the things that's quite different about automating inequality as a book 
is I start in um, each one of these cities where there's a, um, a system that I write about. I, ta- I, I start from the point of view of the poor and working families who are the targets of these systems, because um, I think those are the voices we really need to hear if we're gonna if we're going to um, tackle in any meaningful way um, the amplification of inequality that that comes with this new technology, um, and also just the age old problem of uh, of economic inequality and um, the hatred and disdain of the poor. How much is automating inequality the result of good intentions gone bad? The result of unintended consequences. For instance, the system that you look at in Los Angeles with the homeless. I am certain that the people who were at least at the very beginning either trying to sell it to the public or in their own beliefs were thinking that they were trying to provide a service for the homeless to get them better services. How much of this is un- are, are just some uh, unintended consequences, or do you think that there's more than that? Yeah, so of the three stories that I tell, it's actually really important um, to understand. The first story, the Indiana story, you know, again, I don't know what was in their hearts, uh, the designers' hearts, but I, I do know that if you tried to build a system on purpose, that would divert people more effectively from um, accessing the shared resources they're entitled to and and deserve, I don't think they could have built a system intentionally that diverted people better than this system did, even if it was accidental, right? So that was, that's a pretty bad case. It seems like bad intentions, certainly bad implementation and awful, horrible results. Um, but it's important to know that the next two cases, that's kind of my intro case. I wanted, it, I wanted it to help people understand how bad things can go when they go bad with these systems. But in Los Angeles and in Allegheny County, I want to say really clearly that I think everyone I spoke to, um, including designers of the system, administrators of the agencies, um, and caseworkers at all levels of these organizations, have um, almost to a person, really incredibly positive intentions, right? They're trying to do the right thing. Um, they're really smart people. They care deeply about the people their agencies serve. Um, so I actually am really clear when I talk about the book that I, I did not cherry pick the worst case scenarios, right? Like, in fact, Los Angeles and Allegheny County are some of the best systems we have, um, and actually have done many of the things that progressive critics of algorithmic decision-making ask these designers to do. So their systems are largely but not entirely transparent. That is, they're sharing a lot of information about how the systems work and what's inside them. Um, they are um, held in public or public-private um, partnerships, and they're held in public agencies. So there's some degree of accountability over how the tool works and some degree of sort of democratic um, decision-making around how to use the tool. Um, And also there actually in both cases, there was some level of sort of participatory design in building the tools with the communities of folks who were going to be using them, not often with the folks who were going to be targets of the systems, but at least with the the caseworkers who would be using them. So in in Los Angeles and Allegheny County, these designers have actually done everything we asked them to do. And that's actually why I chose those as cases, is because I wanted us to struggle with the hard cases, not the easy cases, right? There's an easy story of like government incompetence joined with corporate greed equals a boot on the neck of the poor, right? Like, 
we, and we need to get beyond that story to really understand um, how these systems are working and, and how deeply dangerous they are. Because these well-intended systems really beg us to ask the question, if we're doing everything right and the system is technically correct, like doing its job correctly and objectively, then why are we still producing systems that, from the point of view of targets, feel incredibly dangerous? Um, and I think that question is about, um, you know, how we think about uh, poverty culturally um, and how we think that programs that um, help manage the worst burdens of poverty um, are managed and what they're supposed to do. So I don't think that um, I don't think necessarily that there are bad intentions, at least in Los Angeles and in Allegheny County. But I also don't think that intentions are the question, right? Um, they like the effects of these systems may be unintended effects, but they're certainly not unpredictable effects, right? So I talk to folks often about these systems as being built into neutral, like it's like building a car with no gears. And we live in a, a, in a nation of deep, deep, deep valleys of inequality and high, high peaks of injustice. So if you build this car with no gears and then park it on the top of one of these hills of inequality, you should not be surprised when the car just like careens to the bottom of the hill and crashes in an, in a, in an, an epic um, uh, collision. Um, so we need to not be building these systems in neutral, right? Because building them in neutral is building them for the status quo. We need to be building, you know, gears of justice into these systems so that they um, actively acknowledge and address the deep inequalities um, that we see in, um, in our communities right now. So let me give you like a concrete example of that because that was a little abstract. Okay. So in, Alleg in Allegheny County, the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, um, one of the concerns that people have raised around this tool is, thankfully, there's not enough, um, there aren't enough really horrible cases of abuse and neglect um, to actually build a predictive model on data for the, 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 the particular thing they want to avoid, which is the deaths or near deaths of children. Um, so those are reported in the state of um, Pennsylvania um, on these reports called child fatality and near fatality reports. There's only, thankfully, a handful of those a year. Um, and in some years, there's none. Um, so that's good for kids. Um, but it's not good for a model because there's not enough data to actually build the model to predict the thing they most want to be able to prevent. So they've used, in that case, what's called a proxy, which is just a stand-in variable for actual child harm. And one of the proxies that they use in Allegheny County um, is called child re-referral. And all that means is that a call has come into the abuse and neglect hotline on a child around concerns around a child. It's screened out as not being um, uh, actual abuse or not being um, uh, uh, or, or not being something that that agency actually deals with or the risk being so low that it doesn't make sense to intervene in that family. Um, and then there's a second call within six months on the, on the same um, child. So that's how that system actually, um, that's what it's actually predicting. It's predicting whether or not a child will be referred to child welfare, not whether or not a child is actually harmed. Um, and the problem with that is that um, communities refer 
black and biracial families to child welfare hotlines three and a half times more often than they refer similar white families. Um, And so uh, what you get there is the possibility of um, really amplifying the kind of harm that comes not from the decision-making of frontline caseworkers, but from our deep um, and terribly mistaken assumptions about black families um, in the community at large. Um, and so we're, we're potentially producing these consequences that you can't say are intended. The system was certainly not built to, um, uh, you know, explicitly to punish black families, but because we have this deep cultural misunderstanding of black families as pathological or as dangerous, um, then we can't say that the impacts uh, that this, the, the impacts of these system will land uh, more heavily on families of color, particularly African-American families. We can't say that's unpredictable, like, because we know this. We know that this exists. So building the system without explicitly um, addressing uh, the misunderstandings, misapprehensions, uh, uh, and biases we have around black families is, um, is to create a system that automates inequality. One last question for you. We've been speaking with writer, teacher, and welfare rights organizer Virginia Eubanks, author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. You can learn more about Virginia at virginia-eubanks.com, and you can follow Virginia on Twitter at PopTechWorks. I only had about another 75 questions for you, (laughs) so... I just got to tell you. Give them all to me real fast. Yeah, exactly. Lightning round for Virginia (laughs) Eubanks. So uh, when this book comes out in paperback or when you do additional writing on it, when you have addenda to this, please have you back on because this really is a fascinating, fascinating topic. I've got one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much are algorithms not voters, shaping the way we govern? How much say do voters have in the determining of those algorithms? Yeah, that's, that's the other million-dollar question in this book, right? So I believe besides the real concerns I have around these systems blocking people from accessing um, the resources they need and deserve or from being over-scrutinized by law enforcement and other public agencies. Those are huge concerns of mine, so sort of the resource question and the social control question. Um, But a fundamental concern that drove me to write this book is that these systems embody really important political decisions. And because we just see them as these sort of simple administrative tools, we just see them as administrative upgrades, we tend to not recognize that we're making political decisions when we adopt these tools. And that absolutely has to be part of our political conversation, um, whether, that's, whether your mechanism for political conversation is voting or not, right? Um, this, that these big questions about how we're going to address um, deep economic inequalities, um, the crisis of um, houselessness, the, 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 the housing crisis in the United States, how we're going to address the misdistribution um, of resources, and how we're going to um, support families and keep them safe and healthy. Um, those are questions we need to be talking about together. Those can't be questions that we defer 
to um, digital algorithms because we don't want to face them directly. Um, and that's one of the key um, calls to action in the book is for us to stop using these tools to turn our eyes away from the most pressing political challenges of our time. Virginia, thank you so much for being on our show. And we definitely want to have you back on our show again. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'd love that. Thank you so much for the conversation. Take care. Guys, we're hitting the home stretch now. This is hell, a special best of episode curated by me, your producer and training, Leo. That was Virginia Eubanks, an interview from May. Now we're going to have one from February with Yasha Levine talking about the secret military history of the Internet. Stay tuned. The Internet is a government plot. No, make that a military plan to watch all of us all of the time in order to keep us in line, to control us. But come on, that can't ever happen, can it? Here to scare the hell out of us, returning to This Is Hell, investigative journalist Yasha Levin, author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Yasha. Hey, Chug. How's it going? Good. It's great to have you back on the show. You can follow Yasha on Twitter at Yasha Levin, that's L-E-V-I-N-E, where he describes himself as Soviet American and nefarious Russian. I love that description of you, sir. I'm glad that you put it right out there. Yeah, I mean, look, it's important because I think in this uh, in this age of uh, Russian influence, you know, and Russian meddling, we have to be very um, upfront <clears throat> about our own, uh, per, you know, Russian ties or possible Russian ties. So I uh, I took the liberty to self-investigate myself uh, <laughs> be- for for the public's benefit. I'm glad that you're doing that. How much have we democratically allowed the surveillance system that does watch us today? Did we choose? this surveillance state, how much are we responsible as consumers of the internet? How much are we responsible for the surveillance state we live within? Well, I mean, you know, um, as responsible, you know, we're as responsible for it as we are responsible for, I don't know, the nuclear, uh, nu- nuclear weapons and, um, and, uh, all the other great things that our military has produced. Um, I mean, in reality, we haven't really had much of a say, right? Um, you know, the internet, came out of a uh, counterinsurgency project um, in the 1960s, uh, in the 1970s, during the era of the Vietnam War. And it was a, um, you know, back then, um, America was dealing with uh, a bunch of insurgencies all around the world, right? <clears throat> Vietnam War, uh, but also uh, insurgencies all over the world, uh, from Southeast Asia to Latin America. And, of course, uh, it was also facing a, an increasingly um, volatile domestic uh, environment with anti-war protesters, uh, militant black activism, um, uh, powerful left-wing organizations that were, you know, taking over um, campuses, uh, shutting down, trying to shut down military research um, uh, on campus in America. And, you know, um, the military saw these insurgencies, uh, foreign insurgencies, and a domestic insurgency, what they thought was an insurgency, as part of a bigger sort of communist plot, right, to um, not only expand power uh, abroad and internationally, but also undermine America from within. And in certain uh, rarefied military circles at the time, it was believed that, you know, America was dealing with a new kind of war, right, a war that you could not fight with traditional armies, or that you couldn't just drop a nuke on or send a tank division into, because 
the enemy was part of the civilian population. It's very hard to isolate and to figure out who they were, why they were rebelling, things like that. And so the idea was to fight this kind of new war, you needed a new kind of weapon, and an information weapon, right? And so some people were thinking about the need to create, uh, develop computer technology uh, that could um, help sift through the reams of data about societies, about populations, about people, right? And help military commanders, analysts, generals, um, you know, uh, find uh, the needle, uh, the, you know, the radical needle in the uh, in the sort of the the uh, complacent haystack, right? And and and, and to find that needle and, and eradicate it. And so whether it's here in America or in Vietnam or in Latin America. And so the Internet came out of this um, general movement to create systems of surveillance, right, management systems for society that you could ingest um, data on uh, populations. You know, you could look at criminal histories. You could look at welfare roles. You could look at um, intelligence data that you collect, surveillance data that you collect on uh, radical movements on protesters, right? Ingest that all into a computer system. Things that like that didn't exist back then. Ingest that into databases and be able to do perform sophisticated analysis on that data and and potentially run even predictive models that could help predict um, what would happen in the future or who would rebel in the future. And so the internet, <clears throat> which was created by ARPA, um, beginning in the early nineteen sixties um, through the seventies, um, was came out of a counterinsurgency idea for the world, right? And it's a kind of an information-based counterinsurgency weapon. So, I mean, how much of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a say did you know, Americans at the time uh, have in it? Not much. But people did protest against it at the time. Even in the 60s, people knew that the ARPANET, which became the Internet, was a tool of surveillance. And if it was going to go and expand unchecked, it would create a system of surveillance and control. So people did understand it you know, um, almost half a century ago and protested it. But, of course, you know, that got kind of washed away in the 80s with a, kind of a surge of cyber libertarianism that took over America. How much do we lack an understanding of what the Internet was meant to be and is when we don't have a realization, as you were just pointing out, that the 1960s activism was about anti-militarization. I don't think that if you asked people what were the 1960s riots about, they'd probably say, you know, hippies having fun or being against the Vietnam War or for civil rights. They, I don't think that they would have this bigger overarching umbrella-like idea that they were all anti-militarization mil- mil- activities. So what do we miss in our understanding of what the Internet is, what the Internet was supposed to be, what it is today, when we don't realize that in the 1960s, what people were standing up against was militarization. Yeah, no, we, we don't understand much about the Internet today. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the surprising things that I um, discovered, uh, surprising and a bit depressing, to be honest, um, things that I discovered while uh, researching this book, is that <clears throat> the, re- the real history of the Internet is, has never really been told. Um, what we've been, what we've gotten is the sort of bits and pieces of it, and some really good uh, histories, some really good profiles of people who were instrumental in, you know, uh, in sort of uh, laying the groundwork for this networking technology, and, and you know, brilliant people. But they, but the, but the true history of it, the kind of the uncomfortable stuff, the stuff that doesn't really uh, square right with our current cultural understanding of the internet, and 
there's sort of the, the idea that this is, it is a democratic and utopian technology, which is sort of so embedded really into our society, into our culture. You know, I mean, democracy and the internet are almost synonyms at this point, right? Um, the, the true history of the internet and the, this idea that it was a very militarized technology that was uh, at its root um, conceived as a surveillance um, network. I mean, uh, surveillance in the, in the biggest sense of the word, right? Not just um, to surveil, you know, just people, but a kind of a, a, a management system, right? Uh, a command and control system for human societies, for militaries, but also here for human societies. And so we don't really have a good sense of the Internet. And, of course, <clears throat> when you go back and, and look at the, um, at the history, um, you see that, you know, there was a lot of, like you said, there were, you know, uh, the 1960s and the 1970s were really about protesting uh, the militarization of society and the militarization of academic life uh, and the, the militarization of, of campus life. Um, and um, there were protests all over, you know, in almost every major university at the time. Pretty, you know, some of them got really violent. Buildings were burned, uh, occupied for, for sometimes for weeks. Um, and what you realize when you look at, when you actually look at it from the point of view of the Internet, right, was that a lot of those protests were specifically targeting ARPA programs. Um, so ARPA is the Pentagon um, sort of defense um, R&D arm of the Pentagon, right, and that we know now as DARPA. Um, they were targeting ARPA, but also they were specifically targeting the ARPANET and programs associated with the ARPANET. So people at the time were protesting the ARPANET and, so, and, and, and understood what it was and, so, and saw it as a, as a, as a surveillance um, network. And, and, you know, going back to 1969, so there was a protest at MIT, 1969, um, there was, that was the year that ARPA net was launched. That was the that, that was the year that first node was <clears throat> connected, you know, connecting Stanford to UCLA. Um, so the first year that it went online, there was already a protest against it in, at, at MIT, and that has been completely lost in sort of the myths of his, in the myths of history. And com- because it's you read any history of the internet, and uh, you don't really get that sense that people were protesting against it um, and understood what it was. Again, because I think it doesn't square with our understand our mythology of the internet. Right, our mythology of the internet. I want to get to that in a little bit and uh, holding corporations responsible. Uh, you write that when it comes to uh, tech company collusion in surveillance, quote. Google possibly helping Oakland spy on its residents? If true, it would be particularly damning. Many Oaklanders saw Silicon Valley companies such as Google as being the prime drivers of the skyrocketing housing prices, gentrification, and aggressive policing that was uh, making life miserable for poor and low-income residents. Indeed, just a few weeks earlier, protesters had picketed outside the local home of a wealthy Google manager who was personally involved in a nearby luxury real estate development. So Google is profiting off buying on city residents while driving the price of their homes up so much it becomes impossible to afford to live there anymore. If this is the Silicon future, so many in D.C. on both sides of the aisle want us to embrace, what are we in for? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, we're in for, we're in for something really bad. Um, but, but uh, you know, um, yeah, look, uh, you know, we have to understand that Google, although it tries to present itself as a bulwark against government power and it tries to, um, you know, not just Google, but Apple, um, you know, tries to say that it's, it protects us with encryption and all these things from the FBI. Well, you have to understand that they are very much part of the 
um, national security apparatus, right? Um, Google, um, Oakland is just one example. You know, as I dug into its history and its, you know, and its and its contracting history with the federal government and various intelligence agencies, I found out that almost as soon as it <clears throat> um, became uh, a company, when it was you know, when it spun off out of a Stanford research project and became a company, it was selling its technology to the NSA, to the CIA, its search technology. Um, and that continued, continues through today. Like, for, for instance, it's, uh, it's par- partners with a predictive, uh, predictive policing um, um, company based in, uh, uh, called Pretpol, um, you know, helping customize its sort of mapping and um, analysis engines um, for, a, for a company that sells its services to police departments across the country. Um, to help, you know, basically predict crime spots. Um, so it's it's very much intertwined um, with uh, with with not just the national security state, but also law enforcement on a on a local level. And so, yeah, right now we have <clears throat> you know, a few months ago um, there were these hearings, uh, Senate hearings about you know uh, R- Russian influence over over the internet and uh, and, and the election, and um, there was a bipartisan agreement. Um, to um, basically force Silicon Valley, right, to pressure it, to to work even more closely with intelligence agencies to police the Internet for, you know, malicious information um, that could be pushed by a foreign power. And so we're we're being pushed in that direction, and there's no real um, accountability, right? Silicon Valley is a very opaque um, industry. You know, it's obviously private. It's we don't really have a. Uh, we don't know what goes on in there. We don't really have any democratic power over these platforms at all. At the same time, they have completely merged, and are even more merging now with the national security state, which is also a completely opaque entity and force. And so, you know, we have it's it's the worst of both worlds. But it's 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 kind of a logical conclusion, I think, of of the Internet Project because back in the um, you know in the 1960s when First, developing these networked computers and databases and um, analysis software that didn't exist un- until then. The people were already thinking into the future and thinking about creating um, a kind of a you know an early warning radar system, right, for human society, um, a-, a-, a network computer system that could sit on top of the world and watch it for threats and 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 intercept them before they could could uh, cause harm. On a, on a globe, on a kind of a global and societal level, but even on a personal level. So, and we're seeing that right now. I mean, the internet has become a kind of a radar system, right, for people and for societies. And um, so, we're seeing a logical conclusion of the internet project. Uh, and so, it doesn't surprise me. How much do you think this collusion between Silicon Valley and the national security state, between Google? And surveillance systems. How much do you think that is the definition of an oligarchy? Oh well, I mean, yeah, it's national security oligarchy, a self-reinforcing um, system. Yeah, I mean, it is a it's an oligarchy in, in any way you cut it. You I mean you have just several companies owned by um, several individuals that dominate internet and dominate everything that we do on the internet. And these companies like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon. Like Apple, I mean, they are really the extension an extension of the national security state, right? We don't, um, you know, our phone, our Android phone, or our, our you know Apple phone, it, it's not owned by the NSA. The NSA didn't build it, right? 
the NSA doesn't own the internet. So for it to spy on people, it requires a private these private tools, these this private infrastructure that it can bug and that it can that it can tap into. And so, you know, <clears throat> these monopolistic oligarchic systems are direct are a direct extension of the national security state and the surveillance state. There, there there's a we don't like to draw a fine line between you know the private sector and the public sector, and but there is when you start to drill down into the into the relationships um and and into the connections right between the state and these and these corporations the line gets very very fuzzy i mean you at some point you you don't really know where one begins and the other one ends right and so yeah it's it's a it's like a state private you know um oligarchy but when we do think about the history of the internet. We don't think of people in military uniforms uh, working as spies to try to implement a system and impose it upon the people of the United States. Instead, what we think of is uh, hippies uh, working out of their garage and having only the best intentions that may have turned into unintended consequences. So how much were the visionaries, the hippies who started the whole uh, cyber movement, how much were they just simply co-opted by the military-industrial complex? How accurate of a history is it when we look at the history of the Internet if we just see it as hippies co-opted by the military-industrial complex? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you needed to co-opt very much. You know, I think there's not a contradiction necessarily between being a hippie and taking acid and being a military contractor, right? And in fact, that's what you had. Um, you had, um, you know, for instance, an example is Douglas Engelbart, um, who was, an, was a con- ARPA contractor. He's kind of a legendary inventor. You know, he's credited with creating the mouse. But his his unit, which was at Stanford, uh, Stanford Research Institute, created, you know, the kind of first um, interactive um, sort of personal computer, you know, complete with online document editing that you could do, you know, you could, you know edit collaboratively like you, you can do with Google Docs now, right, in real time, you know, video conferencing, again, a mouse and, a, and an operating system with menus and things like that. A lot of things that Mac, the Mac, you know, the, or the Macintosh or Apple became, you know, really, you know, was demonstrated in the 70s uh, by this guy, and he was a military contractor, you know, um, and he was working as part of the ARPANET program, and he was attached to the ARPANET program, and he dropped acid, you know, and he gave and he fed acid to his engineers. and so. You know, it's like, um, and and these guys, you know, probably didn't want to think about the bigger implications of what they were doing, um, uh, because it, what's, you know, and they weren't really necessarily brought in on the larger plan, right, of of of, of what this system is actually going to be used for. I mean, it was a kind of obvious, but you don't really discuss it. So there's not a contradiction between being a a counterculture type and doing acid at you know at the time. And and being a military contractor building a information weapon, um, so I think that's a <clears throat> it's a that's a kind of a mythology that that we've been we've been fed a syrupy um, story about you know you know hackers and and radical engineers that just you know sc- scrappy guys that you know put stuff together and created this cool technology that they you know had a real vision for the future and then had this utopian idea for the future and they wanted to create technology that connected the world and equalized power and then you know sure that they might have had some kind of military connections but those things were really not that important and in any way the military is stupid and dumb it doesn't really know what it's doing 
you know, it's just kind of throwing money at these guys. And But they're like, you know, in the end, actually, you know, <laughs> you read some of these histories about the minutes, the, the, the idea is that these guys are actually creating technologies that are going to make the military obsolete. They're going to, it's going to destroy the military because there was going to be no purpose for it anymore in this, in this sort of radical utopian future uh, that they're constructing. I mean, yeah, the reality is that you could take acid and you could work for the military. Not a contradiction. <laughs> uh, so to you, after doing your investigation, after writing this book, do you see, and I'm sorry for making this kind of, is it A or is it B? And you can go anywhere in between if you want. But <laughs> is the internet, when you look at it, is the internet more a weapon being used against you or more of a tool being used by you? Um, I mean, it's definitely a tool that I use. Um, that we all use, you know, we use it to communicate. We use it to, to do everything now to, to, to get, to watch films, to, you know, talk to people and uh, on the phone, to take pictures and things like that. But, um, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I would say I'm a user, but I'm not a very empowered user. My, 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 my power on the, on the internet is very limited. It's, it's like, it's like, you know, it's a funny question because no one would uh, ask that question if it was, let's say, Walmart or Target, right? It's like, do you think that Walmart is using you or you're using it? You know, and then the Internet is kind of like that. You know, we, we go into the Internet. It's all private property, right? We don't really have any rights on the Internet. We are allowed to use it at the discretion of the companies that provide that service, right? We don't have a right to use Google. We don't have a right to use Facebook. We don't actually have a say in the, how these services are run, what's done to the data that we, uh, that we the data trail that we leave behind when we use that service. Um, so we use it at their at their at their mercy, and we can be kicked off off of those platforms at any moment. And of course, there's some useful things that happen, and you know these are useful tools. But we, in the end, have no power in that environment. Just like we have no power when we walk into Walmart, we can buy something there, but you know that's about it. And so we are being used by it, of course. I think more more than we're being. Um, more than we are using it, um, because I think the people who are, you know, the, 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 the companies that are providing these services and that own these services are, have the ultimate power of, of, over, over what we do there. And, and so, of course, they are using us more than we use them. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I'm not, like, making, you know, billions of dollars off using the Internet. Um, I don't know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page are doing pretty well, and so is, so is uh, Jeff Bezos, last I heard. Uh, who's now the richest person in the world. Um, you know, so <laughs> I think we're being used much more so than yeah. Yeah, we're using it, yeah. You write about being in Mauthausen, uh, Austria, describing how Mauthausen is an idyllic place, calm, almost magical. Today, computer technology frequently operates unseen, hidden in gadgets, wires, chips, wireless signals, operating systems, and software. We are surrounded by computers and networks, yet we barely notice them. If we think about them at all, we tend to associate them with progress. We rarely stop to think about the dark side of information technology, as you were just talking about the innovators of the internet, not thinking about what the consequences and their impact would be, all the ways it can be used and abused to control societies to inflict pain and suffering. Here in this quiet country setting stands a forgotten monument to that power the Mauthausen concentration camp how is the power of today's computer technology like the power that manifested itself in a concentration camp 
Yeah, well, I mean, I went there um, as a kind of as a as a pilgrimage almost. Uh, this is in Austria, on the border with, uh, with the Czech Republic. Um, um, you know, it, it's a it's one of the Mauthausen was one of the largest um, sort of a death camp slave labor complexes operated um, by Nazi Germany, and um, it's part of its management to, to management of, of operations in this sprawling complex that actually spanned many different sub camps. Um, was um, sort of IBM technology, IBM punch card technology, um, and it was used to administer it and it, you know administer uh, these death camps much more efficiently to keep track of the labor pool, to keep track of the the kind of specialists that were there, and in, you know if they if the specialists died off, you know you need to be able to you know relay that information to Berlin and get get some, some get some fresh labor to to fill to fill those shoes and to to keep the to keep the Sort of uh, slave labor complex operational, so I just went there um, to to look at you know the dark side of technology, right? Because to me, we look at technology as this thing that is uh, transcends um, I don't know transcends economics, transcends politics, transcends even um, human nature, right? It somehow the internet has been has has taken on this cast as something above us, something. Something almost godlike, um, and that, and I, to me, going there and looking at that place brings us back down to life, and to down to earth, and down to human uh, actions. And because technology is a, is, an, is, a, is a reflection um, of human society, right? Uh, technology it can be is, is used in accordance to that that society's values and 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 political culture. So at the same time that. IBM uh, was supplying these things for, for the concentration camps in Germany. It was also powering the social security system in America, right? So keeping pensioners alive and happy. So for me, it was, it was a reminder that computer technology is not something uh, that sits above the world. It's very much a part of it. And so it's used in a way, uh, in, it's used in a way that's, dumb, uh, that's um, um, driven by the dominant you know, political values of a society. And so... It's a lesson to me about the internet. So the internet is a reflection of our culture right? <clears throat> and our society. The internet right now is dominated by giant corporations, billionaires, um, and surveillance and spy agencies, right? Because our society is dominated by those forces. So we cannot change the internet without changing the under underlying society that it sits upon and reflects. And so if we want to make the internet better, make the internet work for people and for society on, on some, we have to, on, <clears throat> to work for society. We have to figure, we have to figure out, first of all, what we want, what it means to have an internet work for society. And then we have to actually have that society do these things. <laughs> and then the internet will follow from that, I think. So, um, yeah, the internet is a reflection of our culture. And so it's not surprising what it has become because our culture is just a very toxic place now, and the Internet is a reflection of that. You write about how integrated concentration camps and their slave labor became in Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. They, you write how they refined oil, the slave labor. They built fighter aircraft, assembled cannons, developed rocket technology, and were leased out to private German businesses. Volkswagen, Siemens, Daimler-Benz, BMW, Bosch, all benefited from the camp's slave labor patrol. The administrative nerve center was centrally directed from Berlin using the latest in computer and early computer technology, IBM punch card tabulators. No IBM machines are... 
uh, displayed at Mauthausen today, and sadly the memorial makes no mention of them. How much does not holding companies responsible for their role in atrocities, does not having IBM machines at the exhibit at the concentration camp cause any lack of criticism of today's technologies? Are we susceptible to Google because we forgave VW? How much is our tech optimism driven by the unwillingness to hold accountable uh, those companies that have had a negative impact on society and culture? I think uh, that's a very, very good point. And um, the fact that there's no um, IBM machines at, at, at the concentration camp today, at the memorial, is a, is a travesty. And I agree, it's, it's a, it does a disservice to our memory and a, dis, and a disservice to um, our understanding. Because if we don't understand the past and we don't have, if our, if our, if our sense of today isn't situated firmly in what happened yesterday, we cannot really go forward. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right 100% is that if we don't hold these forces accountable and if we don't um, hold our society accountable for these things, um, then um, we don't really know anything and we don't really have a handle. Um, you know, it's um, more and more uh, these days. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm beginning to see the role of investigative journalism as a kind of, um, you know, as, as, as actually more of a, almost a historical, as a historian, without investigative journalism, cannot really function without history anymore. You know, we have so much information coming from every direction. The internet is, is actually a big uh, driver of this. We're flooded with information, but that information doesn't help us understand anything. More information doesn't mean a better understanding, and it actually means less understanding. And so we have to really reclaim the past and uh, reclaim our, our our history. And uh, resituate it in um, today's politics and today's problems, because without it, um, we we just we're gonna. There's no way out. And so yes, 100%. Holding those entities accountable is very important. You know, it's interesting because at the same time <clears throat> that IBM um, tabulators were being used in Nazi concentration camps, they were actually being used to process um, uh, Japanese Americans in uh, internment camp internment camps in America. Um, that, and that also that also a lost part of history that very few people know about. Yeah, you know, this is uh, such a fascinating book. Uh, you know, you write that uh, this wasn't the automated type of this IBM tabulation system that was used by Nazi Germany. This wasn't the automated type of computer network system that the Pentagon would begin to build in the United States just a decade later. But it was an information network nonetheless, an electromechanical web that fueled and sustained Nazi Germany's war machine with blazing efficiency. How much has the United States inherited that Nazi mindset, in your opinion? Well, you know, it's a good question. I, 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 I think, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think America had plenty of, uh, plenty of Nazi mindset before Nazi Germany uh, came around, to be honest. And uh, I think, um, I think uh, there is a kind of a, it's not, it's not a good sign because in the end, Germany lost, right? And so all this information, all these information systems, um, uh, are not actually necessarily uh, uh, helpful um, because they uh, gave you a false sense of control and a false sense of um, um, of, of um, 
sort of, uh, you know, information awareness and the management. So, but yeah, I mean, to some degree it, it has, uh, you know, America has <laughs> uh, been um, a kind of a, you know, there's a bit of fascism in America. I think it's uh, safe to say. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, what's interesting about IBM <clears throat> and punch card in general is that they actually came out of an interesting um, episode in American history. They actually are very tied to um, the science of eugenics that, that really took hold in America in, um, beginning in the late 19th century and early uh, 20th centuries uh, because um, IBM came out of a company called Herman, Tabula- Herman um, Terp Tabulator um, Tabulator Company um, by this guy named, uh, created by this guy named Herman Hollerith who was, um, worked at the U.S. Census and was essentially contracted by the U.S. Census um, in around the 1880s to come up with a, uh, a, a, a way to count and to tabulate the census for using a mechanical method or some kind of automated method because it was being done by hand before that. And there was a huge surge of in, in immigration at the time, and there was a big worry uh, American, among American Anglo-Saxon elites that um, these immigrants coming from um, Southern Europe, um, Eastern Europe, were you know going to dilute America's uh, superior genetic stock and uh, drag the whole country down. And so there's a lot of panic about this influx of immigrants and their and their bad genes. And so the U.S. Census got more and more and more complicated. They wanted to know much more about the origins of these of, of Americans, you know, their eth- ethnic makeup. And so it started getting really bloated and almost impossible to count. And so it took 10 years to, uh, in the 1880 census, took 10 years to count by hand, you know, the, the census had to be carried out every 10 years. And so it wasn't even done by the time the next census had to be carried out. And so the um, um, the first computer technology, this IBM punch card, really came out of a need to surveil people um, on an individual level, but on a, on, a, on a mass level, but also surveil their their ethnic makeup, and so it's it's it, it, the stuff is all kind of tied together. You know, sort of the origins of computers and computer technology are very much tied up with um, surveilling populations and controlling populations, or, or at least the urge to control populations. Right? And so, what you know, what Nazi Germany was doing later on with the stuff, you know, it, it's not such a big departure, right? Of of of, how, of from where this uh, technology originated. And so um, it's important to understand the, the darker side right, of, 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 of technology and information technology, uh, because um, if we uh, if we don't, we're we're just going to fall prey to to these to these syrupy false narratives about the utopian progressive nature of technology that I, that, that that dominates society still. One last question for you, Yasha. We have been speaking with investigative journalist Yasha Levin. He is author of Surveillance Valley, the Secret Military History of the Internet. You can find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com. You can find out more about Yasha at yashalevin.com. You can follow Yasha on Twitter at Yasha Levin, where he describes himself as Soviet-American and nefarious Russian. His new book, uh, Surveillance Valley, has been excerpted at The Baffler, and we shared that excerpt online this week. You can find it on social media, on our social media feeds. Yasha was on our show last April to discuss the Baffler article, From Russia with Panic, Cozy Bears, 
unsourced hacks and a Silicon Valley shakedown. One last question for you, Yasha. And as it is with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I want to do something that the innovators of the Internet did not do, and that's consider what the impact will be of the Internet on today's culture, on today's political culture. You write about, uh, well, <clears throat> sorry, uh, you write, not all control is equal, not all surveillance is bad. Without them, there can be no democratic oversight of society. Ensuring oil ref- refineries comply with pollution regulators, preventing Wall Street fraud, forcing well wealthy citizens to pay their fair share of taxes and monitoring the quality of food, air, and water, none of these goods would be possible. In that sense, surveillance and control are not problems in and of themselves. How they are used depends on our politics and political culture. So in your opinion, what happens when we put control and surveillance in the hands of anti-government politicians and a political culture that celebrates only private solutions while denigrating all collective solutions? I mean, I think we have what we have, we get what we have today. And, you know, uh, we, we get this kind of anti-surveillance culture that we have now, right, which is, if you think about what happened with Edward Snowden, um, you know, he exposed you know, surveillance, government surveillance on the Internet and how uh, private companies were, you know, playing a, a big role in that. But the but the the overwhelming focus was on not on you know uh, regulating Silicon Valley or uh, stopping this kind of uh, just obscene um, collection of our data and 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 where there is no limits at all on what they can do with the information that they get from us. It was all purely on um, just you know um, sort of of government surveillance, right? Of of limiting government in some way. So we ha- we have a we have a, a culture in which. Um, Surveillance is rarely tied to private uh, enterprises, right? When we when we're outraged about surveillance, when people are outraged about surveillance. They're they're th- they're not thinking about how do I protect myself from Google and what can we do to protect ourselves from these giant corporations. But they're only thinking about how can I protect myself from the NSA, even though you know most of us. I mean, I don't know what the NSA wants on us, but you know, even as a journalist, I think the NSA doesn't really care about me that much. Um, or if it does, it's like not really that important. Um, I understand maybe they're keeping tracks tabs on me, but so what, right? Um, so there are these sort of very specific problems that I think um, um, uh, that arise from giving a, a company like Facebook, like Google, you know, complete a complete uh, free hand in collecting any kind of information they want on us and doing whatever they want with us. I mean, think about if if Coke Industries had all our emails, Coke Industries had all our Text. Coke, Coke Industries had, you know, everything that we do on the internet in its hands. They would use that in some capacity, right? I mean, we we wouldn't put it past Charles Koch to do that. I mean, it, it's silly for us to think that Google doesn't do wouldn't do the same thing. And so, because it's influencing politics, and it's it's for to its own ends to and for to its own profit. And so, we have to um, we have to focus on that. But we're not really talking about that at all. In fact, we're you know, Congress right now is trying to empower um, Silicon Valley to 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 clamp down on you know this sort of supposed malicious interference in our in our democratic internet system by you know by Russia and other outside forces. So there's not any talk about constraining their power. 
Um, but most people just think about, you know, the NSA or the FBI when they think about surveillance. So um, we live in this world where we, we, we live in a kind of a libertarian world, in a liber- libertarian culture. And uh, our, our politics about the internet and technology are very libertarian. Uh, you know, you were on the show. I just want one more question. I know you only have a couple minutes. You were on our show before to talk about the uh, Russia investigation. Things have changed since the last time you were on our show back in, I believe, of March of last year, March or April of last year. Uh, so how do you think this investigation will end? And if it does look into Trump's financial matters, can that be? Can that counter any of the arguments that you have had about how Russia, quote unquote, hacking of the election has been exaggerated? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if there's something that comes to light, of course, we're going to have to redefine our our position on this, right? And and we're going to have to reassess. Um, so far, what we've seen, and given the unprecedented amount of leaking that's happening uh, from uh, by the FBI and by by Congress, you know, to the press about what's happening, there's very little of material uh, um, that points to anything other than just regular corruption, you know, regular D.C. corruption. Um, You know, um, I mean, I think everyone is suddenly very worried about the Internet, you know, after Donald Trump was elected. Um, You know, you turn on MSNBC and you'll... At any at any given hour, you'll probably hear have an analyst talk about you know this, the unprecedented nature of what Russia did on the internet. Uh, you get the sense that Russia did something that no one's ever done before, right? They actually used the internet to influence people, right? <laughs> and you know this idea is so ridiculous because that's what the internet is made for. I mean, it goes back to the very origins of the internet, but that is what you know companies like Google, companies like Facebook. Twitter, that's the service that they sell to advertisers, right, to influence their users. And so, um, and when you look at the actual numbers that have been released about, you know, the ads that Russian entities um, have bought on Facebook and on Twitter and on Google, and then you look at uh, during the election cycle, and then you look at the amount of money that was spent on on, um, um, Internet advertising during the election cycle, by American groups, by billionaires, right, and corporations. Um, the Russian spending doesn't even uh, get to a percentage point. It's, it's a rounding error in, 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 in the overall spending that happened on the Internet. And that, of course, doesn't even include, you know, the, the traditional media and print, print media and billboards and things like and radio. And so, you know, this idea is that, like, if you took out all the Russian influence from the election, right, would Trump still win? Would Trump would have still have won? I believe yes. Um, um, uh, but again, um, I could be proved wrong. But my sense of it, from everything that I've known, and my and my and my and my and from everything that I could have analyzed, and knowing the history of it, and looking at the numbers as much as we can, know those numbers because they're very opaque. Um, I think it was not very material to the election itself. Yasha, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. And when uh, your book, Surveillance Valley, comes out in paperback and a new amended version, we'd love to have you back on the show. That's investigative journalist Yasha Levin, author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Thank you so much for being back on This Is Hell. Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry that my voice gave out.
too much talking, too much talking. Oh, I thought it was because you're finally going through that stage of your life. I, I was kind of going to uh, yeah. tell you I was no, proud of thanks. you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for not bringing that up. I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Yasha, take care. All right. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Sure. You are listening to a special best of edition of This Is Hell. You were just hearing Yash Levine in an interview from February. Now we're going to wrap it up with Stacey Mitchell in a March interview talking about Amazon, how it is buying up the world. Um, guys, it's been a goddamn pleasure speaking with y'all today. Uh, I love being a part of this station and this show, the best show there is, not lying. And um, thank you to everybody. Thank you, Chuck and Alex. And I really hope you enjoy this Stacy Mitchell interview. Uh, have a nice one. Concentration of wealth through monopolization of the U.S. economy has brought disparity and inequality, redistributing wealth to the richest while threatening our liberties and democracy. Yes, it's that bad. Here to tell us how bad it is and what can be done, Stacy Mitchell. Mitchell posted the articles at The Nation, headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market, and six ways to rein in today's toxic Monopolies. Stacy is co-director at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Stacy. It's great to be here. You can follow Stacy on Twitter at Stacy F Mitchell, and she also, and you can find out more about her organization by going to ilsr.org. You start with your your article on Amazon uh, by writing about Gazelle Sports, a Kalamazoo-based running shoe and apparel company that started in 1985, grown steadily over decades, adding locations, more than uh, 170 employees. But then in 2014, sales took a downward turn. The problem wasn't so much that customers had made a conscious decision to buy their running gear elsewhere. Founder Chris Lampin Crawl says, rather, a number were doing more of their overall shopping on Amazon. So eventually, with uh, sales flagging and staff reductions underway, the founder decided that he may, had to make the what seemed like a necessary decision. Gazelle Sports would join Amazon Marketplace, becoming a third-party seller on the digital giant's platform. How much does selling on Amazon, while it may get you out to a larger number of people, who knows, it might actually increase your sales, but how much does it cost to the seller? What is the cost to the seller for selling on Amazon? Well, the straight up cost is that Amazon takes about 15% of every sale. Typically, it varies by product, but it's usually about 15%. And then if you use their fulfillment services, they also charge you a bunch of fees for warehousing and handling your goods. And they increasingly have pretty strong incentives to get people to use their fulfillment services. But the more um, insidious thing I think that's going on is that Amazon uses the knowledge that it gains from the people that the businesses that rely on its platform to compete against them. And that's the really uh, dangerous part of this company. How do they compete against them? That's the part that I found really fascinating because it seems like Amazon isn't in competition with anybody except for the people whose products they sell. 
Yeah, I mean, we I think we tend to think of Amazon as a retailer, and and certainly it is. I mean, they they captured half of all online spending last year. One out of every two dollars that Americans spent online went to Amazon. They're the largest seller of books and toys and almost uh, clothing and and consumer electronics of any retailer online or off. So they do sell a lot of stuff. But the key to really understanding Amazon is that they want to control the underlying infrastructure of the economy. They want to control the rails, if you will, that other companies need to use in order to reach consumers. And so the thing that I think is the most startling and revealing statistic about Amazon is that half of, more than half of all online shopping searches start at Amazon. So it used to be, even just a few years ago, that when people wanted a particular product, um, what they would do is go to a search engine, like Google or something, and they would type in the name of the product, and then they would get different results, and Amazon would be among them, but there would also be other businesses. Now, more than half of people are simply starting their shopping right on Amazon. And if you're an independent retailer or a major chain or a producer of uh, goods of any any size, what that means is that if you want to continue to, you know, your options are you continue to have your own website out there uh, on a road that is less and less traveled. It's like having your shingle hanging out on a dirt road with a few people going by. Um, or you become a seller on Amazon's platform. And the peril of that is that Amazon competes against you. They sell the same stuff that you do. And there's you know, there's a research done by Harvard Business School that found that um, is when a new seller comes onto the platform, Amazon monitors their products and within a few weeks t- takes their you know top 25% of their products and brings it into its own inventory. Or another example is that Amazon is increasingly manufacturing its own goods. So they're now Amazon branded batteries and uh, a lot, they have seven different lines of apparel and all of these different goods. So when they see a hot product, sometimes they just knock it off and start producing it themselves. And then, of course, you look at the search results. Guess who's at the top of the search results? It's the Amazon product, you know, or if you order batteries on Alexa, Alexa doesn't say back to you, hey, do you want Energizer or Duracell? The only batteries that you're going to get shipped to your door are Amazon batteries. Um, So this is really a strategy for surveilling the rest of commerce, learning how it's done, and and then taking over uh, the most lucrative pieces for itself. So do you believe then that Amazon is or is acting like a monopoly? And if they're not, how do they fall short of being a monopoly? They have monopoly power in online commerce. Uh, you know, clearly with that kind of market share and that ability, you know, essentially if, if we think of what a monopoly is, is, you know, a company that, you know, has the ability to dictate terms to other players in the market. Um, and in the case of online commerce, Amazon has that capacity. Uh, it certainly is a monopoly in books. I think that's uh, undeniable. They sell half of all books, both print and e- e-books. They have a, about 70% of the market for e-books. Uh, and then they're this major uh, gatekeeper. They have this monopoly power with regard to online commerce. With the acquisition of Whole Foods, uh, some months ago, they're now extending that power into offline retail as well. And that's the Amazon police now getting Stacy, so she'll have to be leaving. <laughs> uh, so you write that Jeff Bezos has designed the company for a far more radical goal than merely dominating markets. He's built Amazon to replace 
markets. His vision is for Amazon to become the underlying infrastructure that commerce runs on. How much control would that give Bezos and by extension, Amazon over the U.S. economy? Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos is now the richest person in the world. Uh, he has an enormous amount of, of power, and, and Amazon does does too. I mean, we've talked some about their control of the online platform um, and the sort of infrastructure that other businesses need, but they have other big pieces of infrastructure too. Uh, one is cloud computing. Uh, Amazon uh, uh, controls about a third of the world's cloud computing capacity. Everybody from Netflix to the CIA actually resi- relies on Amazon to manage and, and uh, uh, send out their data. Um, and Amazon is increasingly becoming a shipper. So they are building out their package delivery and shipping infrastructure and going after UPS and the post office. And so we can imagine a future in which, you know, you want to start up a business um, and you need to use Amazon to manage your data. You need to use its platform in order to reach consumers and you need to rely on its shipping service in order to get your goods to doorsteps. Um, what you have there is not a market, right? I mean, this is not an open market in which uh, people can buy and sell goods uh, freely and of their of their own accord. What you have is a private arena that is controlled by this single player. It would be as if Walmart not only came into your town and set up this big store on the edge of of, of town, but also bought up all the other real estate and got to decide. You know, which companies got the choice spots, how much rent they had to pay, when they could be open, what they could sell. I mean, this is essentially a kind of uh, dictator, a kind of king over uh, the commercial sphere. And that's what Jeff Bezos has designed his company to do. So, I mean, they still provide uh, convenience. They provide, at times, low prices. Why is giving that much control to one company not a good thing for the American consumer? Because as you point out in your writing, is uh, since the 1980s, since the early 1980s, the focus of for mergers and for antitrust suits has been, are they able to uh, give us low prices? And if they're able to give us lower prices, then the consumer isn't being hurt. So why is giving that much control to one company not a good thing for the American consumer? I think there are some reasons that as consumers, we should be alarmed about this. I mean, Amazon increasingly picks winners and losers in the economy. And so which books make it to market, which authors are able to succeed, you know, which companies' products are able to succeed, Amazon increasingly controls that because they decide how those books or those products appear uh, in in their search engine. So as consumers, that should be alarming because I I think there's, you know, we did a a report about a year ago, year and a half ago, where we interviewed a lot of different manufacturers, small uh, and mid-sized manufacturers of a range of different products. And they all talked about how Amazon's control of the market is really impeding their ability to create new products, to invent new products, and to, to find a way for those products to reach the market, that it's become a lot harder to introduce new products. And that's uh, concerning in the context of, you know, uh, toys and apparel and other kinds of goods, but it's really concerning in the context of books. So as consumers, I think we should be thoughtful about uh, allowing one company to have that much power. But the other thing that's really important, and I think this gets to where our antitrust law has gone wrong in recent decades, which is that we've, uh, you know, we've, we've conditioned ourselves in, in the way that, that antitrust enforcement has been working since about the 1980s, is that the only real question that gets asked is, 
will this be more efficient? You know, will this merger of two companies result in more efficiency? Will it result in lower prices? But we're not just consumers. We're also producers of value. We're people who need to earn a living, um, who want to have opportunities to start our own businesses or to get a job with a decent wage, who want to live in communities that have um, a certain amount of economic vitality and agency. I mean, we are all these other things in the marketplace, and there is a growing body of evidence that shows that concentrated power, that the fact that there are so many industries now just dominated by a very small number of companies, that that is resulting in a reduction in wages, that it has led to a situation in which the number of new businesses that start every year in this country is now one-third the rate that it was in the 1980s, that it's really slowed the job creation um, engine, the engine of job creation. So there are all these ways in which the power of a company like Amazon and other monopoly companies is really hurting us as producers, as people who need to earn a living. You mentioned new products, and I just wanted to touch on this really quickly. Um, What's wrong with keeping new products out of the economy? Don't we already have enough products as it is? Yeah, well, it's terrible to think about that in the context of a new author, right? I mean, you go to talk, you talk to people who uh, many authors, you know, novelists and and people who do nonfiction as well, will talk about how they first got success, which was typically that there was an independent bookstore or a few different local bookstores that that came across their book, liked it, and started hand selling it to customers, like basically saying to their customers, "I think you'd really like this." And then it would grow from there and eventually would be, um, you know, went on to, to, to success. The pathway now for a book to find an audience has been very constricted, uh, much more constricted than, than it used to be because there are just fewer outlets for books. And trying to be, you know, get some visibility in the context of Amazon is very difficult. There's actually been some research on this um, where, where it found that if you – if you're if you're shopping in an independent bookstore, you're about three times as likely to discover a book that you didn't know about that you want to read than if you're shopping on Amazon. And this applies across uh, across the board. One of the categories of manufacturers that we did a, a bunch of interviews with were small and mid-sized toy manufacturers, and that's a sector where there's a lot of innovation. You're know, coming up with new and inventive toys. Um, And it's also a sector that has a lot of these small and mid-scale companies that are actually based in the U.S. and have have jobs here producing goods. Uh, And they describe sort of the same thing, that they're just being increasingly squeezed. The margin is being squeezed by Amazon, so they have less resources to invent new things. But then they also say it's really impossible to introduce a new product on Amazon because the trick is, how does anyone even know that that product exists? It's one thing. Amazon is incredibly... Um, useful for search. If you know what you want, you can get right to it. But it's terrible for discovery. Um, independent stores are a lot better. Independent toy stores are great for discovery. I mean, this is the way things get introduced. But we just, you know, we did a survey last year of about 3,000 independent retailers nationally, and 90% of them say that Amazon is is a significant threat to their business, you know, much more so than chains and Walmart and Target are. So, I mean, while you're replying to that, I couldn't help but think, uh, to what degree can Amazon's continuing growth lead to privatized censorship, circumventing freedom of press and freedom of speech guarantees that we have? How much can 
their not being challenged as a monopoly lead to some of our basic freedoms being completely undermined in the same way that a government could censor? Yeah, I think the the notion of government is a really interesting one here because in in effect, you know, when I describe this sort of private arena that's not really a market, but a a, a thing that Amazon sets the rules for, um, it's acting like a government, right? I mean, you know, a market should be an open place that's governed by public rules, rules that we set collectively about how that market is going to work. But Amazon's moving us to this world in which it's a private market, and it is the government effectively setting those terms. I think your notion about speech is really important, too. and really speaks to this larger problem of um, what people are referring to as the platform monopolies, which is basically Google, Facebook, and Amazon, uh, these companies that have become you know, the, the platform in which other trade, as well as the sharing of information and ideas in which our, our communications are mediated, um, they are the, the companies that now control those platforms and set the terms for them. And I think, it, it, you know, that kind of centralization of power is quite alarming in the context of, you know, essentially having these private entities that are able to uh, that, that insert themselves and in, in mediate our interactions with, un, with one another, as well as our access to news and information. When FDR used antitrust laws, he was concerned about what he called industrial dictatorship. How much political will do you think there is today to break up any industrial dictatorship that may be taking place in the U.S. today? There is more and more. In the last couple of years, this issue has really taken off. I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited and uh, and feeling pretty optimistic about where things are, are headed. It is going to take popular pressure, to be sure, and that's why I think as citizens, we've really got to become active on this issue and um, and start talking about monopoly and anti-monopoly policy more and more. Um, so, you know, we've seen on on the left, we've seen uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a major speech on uh, antitrust and monopoly uh, in, in 2016, and it was really a headline-grabbing speech in which she uh, laid out uh, a, a, a really a call to, to think about um, antitrust, not just in consumer terms, but what it means to competition, what it means to small businesses, to workers, and to, to democracy. And it was it's a really terrific speech. And it set off a whole uh, movement within the Democratic Party uh, last fall when they they released, you know, three uh, sort of planks of, of uh, for, for their economic policy. Anti-monopoly was uh, one of those three planks, uh, and that was a big breakthrough. Last year, antitrust was in the Democratic Party platform for the first time in over 25 years. Uh, It was absent for all of those years, and now it's back. So there's some really good signs of some movement, and this is also interestingly happening among conservatives as well. So um, you know, there's a the attorney general of Missouri, who is a Republican, has opened an antitrust investigation of Google. Um, it's one of the first investigations looking at platform monopolies. Um, and, you know, we should remember that some of our most historically, some of our most important antitrust cases actually started with state attorneys general. Um, so I think that this, you know, this issue really speaks to core American values, whether you're concerned about equality 
an, an, an opportunity, whether you're concerned about liberty and the, and the freedom to, to be able to go out as a business and have a, a fair marketplace or as a worker and have a fair marketplace, um, and, and whether you're concerned about democracy and the notion that we are the ones who ought to structure the kind of economy that we live in and not uh, these private overlords. And the importance and power of state politics and not just focusing on local politics and local elections and federal politics and federal elections. But you write that by the time Jeff Bezos was setting up his book selling operation on the Internet, uh, these laws, these antitrust laws were no longer being enforced in accordance with their original purpose. In the 1970s, an ideological revolution swept through the fields of law and economics, led by the conservative legal scholar and former Nixon solicitor general Robert Bork, among others. This new school of thought dismissed uh, concerns about the impact of monopolies on the rights of citizens and even on competition. So are antitrust laws the same as they were in FDR's era, but they're just now being interpreted differently? That's exactly right. The really good news about this is that our antitrust laws are all still there. They are as robust as they were um, from the 1930s, you know, through to the 1980s. Um, and what changed is that there was this uh, this shift in how we interpreted and, and enforced those laws, and that began in the 1980s and has continued under both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but there is a real opportunity there to uh, recover those laws and go back to having a more robust approach to monopolies that encompasses more than just this concern about efficiency, but really gets to this broader range of harms. So uh, how much uh, was this change in the way that anti-monopoly law was viewed and practiced? How much was that change a bipartisan effort? It was a bipartisan effort. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, uh, you mentioned Robert Bork, a prominent conservative legal scholar who in many respects is an architect of the, you know, the, of the changes that happened in antitrust, which were really quite radical. I mean, it was, uh, you know, really an abandoning of what the law's original intentions were and a, and a rewriting that, you know, the, the nature of them through how they're interpreted and, and enforced. You know, he led that, um, and it was Reagan who then co- codified those changes. But there was a an ascendant faction of liberals who wholeheartedly endorsed that. Um, and those that group of liberals came to take over the Democratic Party. They played a major role in the election of Bill Clinton, who not only um, continued Reagan's approach to antitrust, but you'll recall he also um, overturned the Depression-era banking laws and allowed and, and, and was a champion for consolidation in the banking industry. Uh, he overturned our media laws uh, and so ushered in this era of, of mergers and consolidation in the media industry. And so the Democratic Party has played a, you know, a fairly equal role in this process and done so out of this, this you know, mistaken notion, I think, that uh, big business would be good for society, that big business would be good for consumers. And when we look now and see what's happened to wages, what's happened to opportunity, this collapse in local business, this loss of agency at the local level, how many communities that they, you know, people feel like the fates of the place that they live is controlled by these outside forces, you know, and, and that's, you know, there's something about that that is just so toxic to democracy and I think really shows in our politics now. So I think we've really learned that this was a bad road to go down. And I'm encouraged by the signs that, 
Democrats certainly, and, and at least some Republicans, are re- recognizing uh, that we need to look at this again. And you're right how a- Amazon has been allowed to grow using tactics that would once have drawn antitrust scrutiny. What tactics would have in the past drawn antitrust scrutiny, and how aggressive has Amazon been in trying to take over the market? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Amazon has done consistently throughout its history that would have been uh, uh, drawn antitrust uh, scrutiny in an earlier era is selling below cost. So Amazon did this in books where it consistently sold books at a loss for years. Um, it racked up about $6 billion in losses uh, in its its first few years in business, and, and investors were happy to let that happen because they recognized that they would profit later on. But the result of selling books at a loss was that all these other bookstores couldn't compete. And, you know, one of the major chains has closed. Barnes & Noble is sort of on life support. Um, independent bookstores lost a lot of numbers. They've come back a little bit in recent years, but Amazon basically just sold books at a loss until it took over the market and nobody else can compete. If you're a small store and you got to pay your bills at the end of the month, I mean, you can't, you can't do that. You don't have those same deep pockets. Amazon has done that as an acquisition strategy as well. And so when upstart competitors have come along that challenged it in online retail, and a good example of this is Zappos, the shoe retailer, you know, Zappos came along and became really popular around 2005, six, seven, um, as this shoe company that people liked. And Amazon went to them and said, we'd like to buy you. And the folks at Zappos said, we're not interested. And so Amazon then proceeded to sell shoes at a loss um, and to offer free over, overnight shipping. And they also would offer like a goodie, a free uh, a free rebate to anyone who bought shoes on their site. They lost an estimated $150 million selling shoes below cost. Zappos limping along, unable to uh, to, to engage in a similar tactic, uh, eventually gave in and sold to Amazon. So Zappos is now Amazon. Amazon has done this repeatedly with different sectors in order to take take over those sectors. That is is known in antitrust law as predatory pricing. When you price below cost in order to eliminate competition, that's a violation of the law. Um, that's the kind of thing that we haven't been prosecuting, uh, and and we should be. And you mentioned how so they're a threat to competition. Uh, they're a threat to choice uh, through like the Alexa service, where you say I want batteries, and they just choose the batteries that you're going to get. You don't get the choice yourself. And they're also a threat to small businesses, as you point out. What happens to the economy when competition is muted, choice is lost, and small businesses are no longer an essential part of the economy? Well, what we've seen is is growing inequality. Um, I mean, I think one of the most striking things about uh, where we are right now is you know, how many regions of the country have been left behind? I mean, there are just a few cities that are really gaining jobs. And then large swaths of the country, um, you know, uh, other cities, small towns, rural areas that have simply been left behind. You know, we're no longer creating new businesses the way that we once were. Um, you know, we think of ourselves as this nation of startups. But in fact, the number of businesses that starts each year is is two-thirds lower than it was uh, back in the 1980s, and it's been steadily declining. And there's a lot of evidence that this is because there are a few big companies that are 
using their market power to keep, you know, to create a, a situation in which you can't successfully start a new business and, and have an opportunity to succeed. Most of our new jobs come from new and growing businesses. So there's been this like loss of this pipeline of new jobs. And then that in turn has meant that uh, the big companies that are out there have more power over their workers. And they've used that power to hold down wages. Um, there have been some interesting and, and really alarming studies recently that have shown that in most labor markets, you know, most regions of the country, there are only two or three three companies that are competing in any occupation, and, and there's just not enough competition for uh, employees. And that means employees have less bargaining power and, and companies are able to basically hold down the wage and also force people to accept temporary working arrangements or these kind of gig jobs instead of regular jobs. And so all of this, uh, you know, concentration has increased the power of a few companies and they're, and they're using it against us as workers uh, and as small business owners. And it means for ordinary people, there are less there are fewer and fewer pathways to get ahead, fewer and fewer opportunities um, to go out there and, and be able to succeed in getting a good job or to, to succeed in starting a business. And for our communities, it means lots of places no longer have their own local businesses, their own um, you know, regional headquarters of a company. I mean, it's all sort of disappearing, uh, and we're increasingly re- reliant on a few big distant companies that you know not only sort of dictate what goes on in the economy, but also have a big uh, controlling um, uh, hand in government. And so, you know, the democratic what what this means in terms of democracy, I think, is at root the biggest threat here of all. And you're right that Amazon isn't just, you know, acting like a monopoly, but it could become a fully automated monopoly. You write robots zip around laden with products while many of the people they interface with are temporary factor uh, temporary employees. Amazon's call the Amazon calls these workers seasonal, but in fact, it relies on them year round. And Chicago is one of 20 cities that are competing to be the site of the so-called HQ2 Amazon facilities, which will supposedly bring up to 50,000 jobs. And whenever they are reported, they're they're called 50,000 well-paying jobs. Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner have a plan that would soar over two and a quarter billion dollars in tax cuts, according to estimates by the Chicago readers, Ben Jaravsky. How excited should Chicago or any city be about having Amazon coming to town. After all, right, they're going to give us 50,000 high-paying jobs. Boy, I just, this this whole sweepstakes for, for you know, for, for their new headquarters and the kind of offers that are being put on the table, and you mentioned $2 billion in Chicago. New Jersey's put $5 billion on the table, or excuse me, $7 billion on the table. Uh, Maryland, just outside of D.C., has put $5 billion on the table. Uh, you know, the thing that's that's, striking about Amazon is we tend to think of them as, you know, they, they got where they are because they, they're really clever and they certainly are um, and successful in terms of, of what they do. But they have also since day one relied heavily on tax advantages and subsidies. I mean, Amazon's already picked up a billion dollars in subsidies to build its warehouses uh, in the last few years. These are you know, deals that, that different cities around the country have given it to, you know, build a warehouse. And now with this headquarters sweepstakes, they're really ramping that up um, and extracting these offers from cities of just 
you know, astronomical sums of money. It is unclear to me that the 50,000 jobs are really, you know, they say 50,000 jobs over 10 years. Maybe. I mean, you know, they don't have that many jobs in Seattle. So, you know, it's a, it's a projection at best. Um, it's not clear whether cities, because Amazon has insisted on um, these these bids being undertaken, <clears throat> excuse me, in the dark without any public disclosures, it's unclear to me that cities are in, in a position to insist on a certain number of jobs in exchange for those deals. Um, meanwhile, Amazon is going to come in. I mean, you think about all of the businesses in, in Chicago where you know th- those businesses have grown through their own investment, their sweat and hard work, um, and they're now watching their city potentially take their tax money and give it to one of their most daunting competitors. Um, you know, there's nothing on the table like that for small and local businesses or uh, you know other kinds of, of companies in Chicago. I mean, really, what you have is is you know a, a lot of cities. Uh, you know, wooing and groveling here with the idea of increasing the power of a company that already is a monopoly. Those 50,000 jobs, even if they do come to pass, most of them are not going to go to existing residents. I mean, they will go to people who have very particular skills that will likely move to the chosen city to take those jobs. And so for most people who live in Chicago, there isn't going to be any upside to this, but there's going to be a lot of downside in that um, you know, uh, housing costs are going to soar even higher. The the average, uh, the the median value of a home in Seattle now is over seven hundred thousand um, dollars. They've seen the uh, number of unsheltered homeless people in Seattle has just soared through the roof. Um, there are problems with this with the city trying to keep up with. Um, road construction and infrastructure because of the strain that it has put on on things. Um, so there is this sort of gentrifying force and this uh, you know pressure, upward pressure on the cost of living that the receiving city is going to have to shoulder. Um, and instead of getting Amazon to pony up money to help offset those costs and to make the investment that it should be making in the place that it locates to ensure that that community continues to be healthy and thriving. Instead of that happening, we have exactly the reverse. We have the city offering Amazon money. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. So if a politician wants to bring jobs back or ensure that they are not lost, how much can they do that by pursuing antitrust litigation against Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at what is it? What, what do we need in order to have a truly thriving economy? Um, I mean, we have you know, relatively low unemployment right now, but wages haven't budged at all. And that's a you know one indicator that we have a consolidated economy that really isn't uh, uh, competitive enough when it comes to, to workers. And we've got a lot of people, many people who work for Amazon, who are forced into these temporary uh, arrangements. You know, uh, a lot of Amazon's warehouses are staffed by temps. As they move into shipping, they're using um, Amazon Flex drivers. They're called, which are you know similar to an Uber kind of model, where you get a a two hour window to deliver packages for a set fee, and you you are just a subcontractor, use your your own car and everything. Um, you know, this is the model that these kinds of monopoly companies have in mind for the future, where you've got a small number of people who benefit. Um, you know, prosperous, uh, uh, you know, few prosperous communities that 
that benefit from that, and, and everyone else is, is marginalized. Um, so antitrust, I think, is a really key part of a strategy to revive an economy that works for people. Um, it means going after these big concentrated companies and breaking them up so that there's more room in the market for uh, new businesses to grow, for these companies to compete for different workers, and to really also force them to innovate. I mean, we don't know what we're missing in terms of innovation because you know, tech is now dominated by Google and Amazon, and they go around buying up anybody who might compete with them. You know, so what are we missing out on? We don't even really know. Um, and so that that innovation, that new business creation, uh, competition law, antitrust law is a really critical part of that. It's not the only piece, uh, you know, not the only tool in the toolbox, but it's a really important one. And we didn't even get a chance to touch on your article, Six Ways to Reign in Today's Toxic Monopolies. So people should check out that writing as well. We've been talking to Stacey Mitchell about her article that appeared at The Nation that was headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. You can follow Stacy on Twitter at Stacy F. Mitchell. And as you may or may not remember from being on our show five years ago, our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So considering the power and the massive uh, corporation that Amazon is, do we all need to stop using Amazon immediately in order to challenge its power? Or would you suggest that we all start buying Amazon stock as apparently nothing's going to stop its incredibly continuing growing power? Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I, you know, I, I, I think that that people have responded to this article often by asking me, you know, should I get rid of my Prime account? Should we boycott Amazon and so on? And, you know, I, I'm all for people like rethinking their shopping choices. You know, go out there and support your local retailers. That's a, a great idea. But I think, you know, as consumers, we're not very strong. Our, our consumer muscle is actually pretty weak. And I think one of the ways that corporations have triumphed is they've gotten us to be in this consumer mindset where we see a problem and we, the first response we have to it is, what do I do as a consumer? The question we need to ask is, what do we do as citizens? So the thing to do is not to worry so much about your Prime account, although, you know, you might, re- you might rethink that, but is to call your Congress person, you know, is to start talking to your friends and neighbors about monopolies and about corporate power. That's the thing to do. Stacy, I really appreciate you being back on our show this morning. Thank you so much for being on. Check out Stacy's writing over at The Nation. Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market. It wants to become the market. And there are the article that we didn't get to today, which is really fascinating, Six Ways to Reign in Today's Toxic Monopolies. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Thank you. That was Stacy Mitchell, and that wraps up our best of episode this week of This Is Hell. Stay tuned next Saturday for when Chuck's back, and we'll have more fresh interviews for you. Uh, it was such a pleasure doing this. This is Leo, your producer in training, and thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.